Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 3.145 They're coming in hard, Chaz yelled out. I knew he was half deaf from the constant explosions. His helmet torn away by a heavy magak cannon that had also ripped off half of the flesh from the side of his face. Stay on them, I yelled. I dropped my heavy auto cannon and kicked it as hard as I could right below the loading tray. The heavy 60mm round popped free, a wet printed casing flying free, spinning through the air. The den from where it landed wrong sparkling in the light from the new stars that kept being born in orbit. Two minutes, Montagatu yelled from where he was crouched down. He had his shielding up, the kind we normally use to bounce heavy artillery and tank rounds. Let them have it, regulators, I roared out as the next wave of machines burst out from past the brethren. The heavy Pontiac autocannon in my hand chugged, and I resisted the urge to up the fire rate. Half of my implants were jangly, throwing bad data, but that was just life, baby, and you lived till you didn't live it anymore. Jazz cursed as more high V rounds bounced off his personal shielding, and I could see the personal battle screen was only a few seconds from fading. My onboard software backtracked the weapon, putting all the heat on him, and I swiveled, still clamping my hand down on the autocannon's firing handle. The heavy 60mm anti-vehicle shell slammed into the oncoming junk as I put John Connor time downrange and into the metal jaws. I couldn't blink anymore. The artificial flesh around my eyes scoured away by the plasma hit. So I had to deal with the slight buzzy feeling of static cleaning charges as my weapon lined up with the clanker, putting the heat on Montaguntu. I twisted my wrist, bringing the fire rate up, and hammered the 60mm hate back at the machine. Its base crumbled under the impact of the high-V anti-vehicle shells, the antimatter flashing brightly. Sharp snaps amid a greasy yellow and red. It reared up, probably to get its base out of my fire but just exposed its belly to me. I gutted it with a handful of rounds that before creation engines would have cost the Confederate taxpayer a cool hundred grand. Five seconds had passed. We were down in the Tigriti. The Clankers wanted us, wanted the indigenous more, and while the Indigs couldn't do anything, we could show the Clankers how it felt to want in one hand and crap in the other. Thirty seconds later, and the clankers were already starting to pull back, trying to find a new angle to come at us. Find a new way to hit us. Bitch, please, I've been doing this for two hundred years. I'm part of Delta 108 old hatred. You can't just be any confed ranger and waltz up to Delta. You gotta be a man. I'd chosen our Alzi carefully. But they wanted us, and they wanted us bad. We hurt little daddy, hurt him bad, pulled these little guys out of his bed and smashed our way back out when the top had gone to crap and some big googly-eyed clanker had spotted us and started screeching like a triandidad matron with a freezer full of malted ice cream. 
45 seconds, and Jazz kept firing even though he was wreathed in flame that some Russell Chungpal had spit on him, even as he'd used the heavy gun to smash it into scrap. Doc NGO was still working hard, crouching down under the other battle screen, his hands working fast. I gave him a glance and put him and his patient out of my head for anything more than keeping track of where they were. I couldn't think of all the wires and probes stuck in that fluffy little Indic's head. 60 seconds, one Tagutu called out. Pour it on, I bellowed back, breaking the Pontiac across the ones I could see. It all jowled. I knew what they'd do. They'd wait for the strikers to come in and blow them out of the sky. That's why they were bringing in the long noses. Strikers weren't supposed to land in a hot Alzi, but they often did because they knew we'd do the same if it was reversed. For a second, I smelled the dust and the acrid rain of Turamankinta 9, as my memory simulator kicked my cortexes and my other metal kicked my memory back down. The glankers had eased off the pressure on my side, popping smoke and hunkering down like I didn't have the gear in my belly to detect them through the smoke. Bitch, I'm a ranger. 75 seconds. Jazz, they're bringing in anti-air, I snapped over the team tactical net. I'm going offense. There ain't no coming back from that, sir, Jazz said. I was looking at the clankers even as I punted shells at them, putting the rate of fire on the Pontiac down to one round every three seconds. I had heat warnings and slash warnings across the board, but I didn't have time for that. No choice. I'll pull them, then try to expel to a new extract, I said. 80 seconds. I could see the anti-air trying to hide behind two heavy armored clankers. The guns depressed to try and make them look like anything but point of fence and anti-air. I leveled the Pontiac and stepped forward, slashing at the clunker. The damn thing deployed micro-drones right before its screen dropped, putting the drones between me and making them suck up the fire to protect itself. 90 seconds. I only needed to keep the clankers busy for two minutes, just long enough to load the indigs onto the strikers and the strikers to go balls to the wall and floor it out of here. Two minutes was an eternity, and I knew it. But my credit card statement had arrived. 105 seconds. I'm down to a slope of the hill. The clankers can't ignore me. The heavy Pontiac is capable of hammering them into junk, and they know it. I made it obvious I'm going for the anti-air, dropping my stealth shielding so that they're getting a good look at me. 400 kilograms of twisted wall steel and sex appeal, coming straight at them with the Pontiac door prizes and enough hate to ignite the sun. I'm taking hits, bad enough to tear away synth flesh. Twice they hit hard enough that I got warning alarms. My body armor is gone, trashed. Nothing but chunks of laminate hanging from straps. Another hit to the face and I'm blind in one eye, so I go to sensor hybrid. The hardware in my chest and on the gun syncing up what I can see providing me with targets. 110 seconds. I can hear the strikers coming in. The anti-air one lunges up, deploying the guns. I twist the firing handle, racking the Pontiac speed up into the danger zone, but running it at a lowered cyclic rate had cooled the nanoforge and the gun and it can take it. My linkages still work and I put every shot where I wanted it, breaking back and forth. 120 seconds. High explosive armor, defeating antimatter hypervelocity rounds scream out of the Pontiac with a peculiar whistle that every Terran grunt recognizes. 
It's a steady streak, the one tracer out of every four rounds turning my fire into solid shafts of light as I pour into the clanker. More outs hit. They're turning. I'm hurting them too bad for them to ignore. They're snapping back at me, high V rounds bouncing off my wall steel chassis, lasers trying to get a bite in but the superconductor layer of the laminate spreading the heat all across me, while my thermal shock sinks gobbled them down to heat. 130 seconds. Loading flashes in my vision, Chaz letting me know that they're getting the indigs on the slicks. Another clanker rolls into my vision and I see it. 145 seconds. There's a black dog sitting in front of the clanker as it pushes aside its comrades, even as the two escort strikers hammer at it. The clanker surges forward and the black dog nimbly moves out of the way, its red tongue lolling out of its jaws, its tail straight up, its fur drinking the light. The clanker's eating everything I can feed it, ignoring the two striker escorts like they're insects. I move to the right, planning on getting on its side and ripping the threads apart, figuring it's going for the strikers. 155 seconds. All loaded. We're away. Get out of there. Jazz can't see the black dog. I can. The clanker doesn't charge the hill, doesn't give me a shot at its flank. It turns directly towards me as high V rounds find the Pontiac and it comes apart in my hands, taking three on my fingers with it. The PPC hit me low, the rampaging electrical current making my legs go numb. I'm down to my onboard weaponry, wrist cocked back, firing the 10mm munitions from my implant. That's gay. I've been in worse situations, although I can't remember when off the top of my head. The nanoforge of my forearm is running hot. No synthetic blood to cool it and pump the heat away to my chest-mounted thermal sinks. That's okay. Half my chest is embedded thermal sinks in my chest were crushed and damaged, leaking thick, clear fluid down my exposed hardware. So, uh, I'll be running hot, so what? I keep raking in front of the crawler, the smart link in my arm still working, making it so that my shops pop sensor nodules, explode teeth, find cracks in the armor. 10mm is only a little guy, but he's friendly and the clankers are feeding it. The clankers mad. He's turning, crushing his little buddies. My implo grenade, my last non-integral weapon, goes off in his face with a crack, crumpling the battle steel skin of the clanker. I take another hit, hard. Can't really feel my arms and legs now. But that's okay. I've been in worse spots. Although, can't really remember when. 180 seconds. I'm being swarmed now as I stagger backwards up the hill. The clankers follow, their fire ripping at me, punishing me for daring to deny them the meal that they wanted. The black dog is weaving between them. 195 seconds. The top of the hill is barren, just me and the black dog, and every clanker in the whole damn world. Danger close appears in what's left of my vision, and I think I'm smiling even though I know my face had been torn off leaving nothing behind but a wall-steel skull. The artillery starts pounding, driving the clankers into even more desperation. Heavy artillery smashes armor, explosions strip tracks and sensors. Dirt is gouting into the air. I don't bother to take cover. I've been in worse situations, although I really don't remember. 
I don't even hear the shot that brings the darkness as the sludge chips cracks open and tries to suck me in. System failure. Then, nothing. Case Omaha. System power 3.14%. I wake up. I hurt bad. My mouth tastes like cherry nipple gloss from the Hydroy girl on the next side 7, but I hardly notice through the pain. I've heard worse. A margite ripped off one of my arms. I could remember the way the cydia teeth clamped onto my armored hand, sucking my whole arm into it. The jaws closing, the bright spark of pain that turned into a torrent of agony as it rippled its starfish-like body, and my arm tore off at the shoulder, crazily leaving behind half my battle-dressed leave. I managed to fire three API shots into it as I staggered back, still screaming, watching as my arm started to dissolve from the enzymes the margite had excreted before the armor-piercing incendiary rounds had cracked and burnt the brain case. It fell back onto the floor of the room I was too familiar with, but was now so different. A kick inside my head made the memory dissolve. Case Omaha! I could see the words floating in the darkness. Self-test, Bootstrap 3.14C, Syntax Cybernetics Division. Warning, severe chassis damage. Warning, severe neural damage. Shutting down. Case Omaha, override. Continuing bootstrap. My mother smiles as she sets down the chicken parry pie. The crust is brown, just right. Steam coming off of it. It's fresh from the oven and smells delicious. My sisters are sitting at the table, dressed in their good clothes, smiling at me. My younger sister's poofy hair is all pulled in a bun, her tightly curled hair so different from my straight and thick hair. My older sister's hair, like someone combined our two hairs to give her long locks of naturally wavy, honey-colored locks. The air is clean and sweet, and I can taste the scent of the pie, smell my mother's perfume, my father's cologne. The sun glints off my mother's left earring, sparking off the ruby satin to it. The light reflected off the delicate platinum. My father's watch is sparkling. He wears timepieces, preferring them over the just using the retinal display or an embedded timekeeper. I can see the sun sparkling on the gem set in the face, on the metals it's made of. My presents are on the table, one from each of my family members. The sun sparkles on the ribbons, dances on the metallic inks of the paper. My little sister is beaming. She is something she thinks I love. She idolizes me. I'm a hero. The sun dances on her hair. Long-term memory damage. Shutting down. Case Omaha. Override. Continuing bootstrap. As you have proved your worth more than whatever crap I have scraped off my boot, I have decided in my endless benevolence that you may each have a dessert. Seeing as you were all a first-time go on the rifle marksmanship unassisted range, the D.I. yells out. She's a mean one, a Rygerian, which means, of course, she's female. She'd seen action, her combat action patch on her uniform. Not that I was thinking about that. I was eagerly moving down the line, uncaring about the food that they put on my tray. I was looking at the dessert. Terran Cherry Pie. I was drooling as I moved up to the pie. Since you pulled off 50 out of 50, Private, you can have a big piece, Drill Instructor Gorwakok said, her rough voice full of pleasure. She pointed at one of the bigger ones, 
Give Deadeye McGee that piece. I stared at the pie, salivating, slowly moving to the table and sitting down. I ate the meat, sauce, and noodles first, the vegetable next, and then slowly savored each bite, closing my eyes. We were supposed to eat this fast as possible, but I didn't want to rush. It was perfect. A perfect piece of pie. Cortex reflex damage, locking out white reflexes, locking out bio-reflexes, warning, severe damage to biological component, aborting startup, case override, continuing startup. I felt the belts, the straps, tighten even through my body armor as the light in the drop pod went yellow. My mouth went dry and I suddenly had to pee. I looked around and I saw that half of the guys in the pod were asleep or looking bored. The other half looked like I probably did. Scared. Captain Dietrich looked at me and nodded. You'll be fine, Private. Less than 15% of green troops die on the first potting, she told me. The lights went red and my belly rose up into my throat as a fist punched us straight down. We're on an express elevator to hell, Sergeant Mason crowed out. I clenched my teeth and tried not to vomit. I repair system online, 28% available. Shutting down, Case Omaha override. Nanite system deployed. I ripped the foil off, sitting on a rock and facing the burnt-out ground car, and tilted the package so that the steam didn't rush up and fog my goggles. I don't care if you aren't hungry. Eat now. We'll move out later. Everyone swallow down some fluids. Sergeant Mason yelled out. Squad leaders, check your men. Ammo count, armor status. Newbies, enjoy your lunch. Still, no reason for the colony to be silent. They hadn't responded to any communications. The ground car was the first sight that anything had had happened. The doors were torn off, tossed to the side. Something was making colonies go dark and, uh, for my sins, my unit had been sent to see why. The Terran peach pie tasted good as I squeezed it out of the foil package and into my mouth. With a screech, the thing lunged out from the ground. A dark blue and green starfish-looking creature with some kind of eyeball staring up from the end of each of its five sections. Its underbelly was nothing but reddish cilia with a mouthful of crude teeth in the middle surrounded by more eyes. It wrapped its arms around Private Pack, who had not gone to advanced infantry school with, and he started to scream in absolute unfathomable agony. I dropped the pouch, grabbing my rifle, Enemy contact, Captain Dietrich shouted. System recovery at 22% total. Warning, biological degradation. Aborting. Case Omaha override. Continuing system recovery. Captain Dietrich walked into my berthing bay, looking around. She motioned at the rest of the squad, motioning at them. They all silently filed out. I don't normally take a soldier's personal history into account when planning an operation. But I felt I needed to speak to you, she said. Her freckles were faded on her umber skin, and her eyes were still shadowed with the memory of being killed two weeks prior. I nodded. I understand. They've been silent for nearly a month before we were deployed. It's been another month, and I was informed that they aren't responding to the hating from the task force, she told me, sitting down at Pack's bunk. I nodded again, my mouth dry. You're a good soldier, and I hate to lose you, she said. But I understand if you can't take part in the drop. I can, I told her. We're dropping onto your home of record, Private, she said softly. 
There's at least three clusters in the city. I swallowed thickly, trying not to think. The smell of my mother's perfume and my father's cologne welled up. I'm willing to excuse you from this mission, Private, she said, trying to be gentle and kind. She was never good at that. She'd been infantry too long. No, I have to know, I said. Let's get it on. She nodded, giving me a lopsided smile. That's the spirit trooper. I followed her out. The dropped pods awaited. System damage exceeds threshold. Shutting down. Case Omaha, override. Attempting system startup. I've got your back, Pack told me. Like me, he had his face mask off. It made you a little more at risk, but it let you smell the thick, cloying smell of pine-scented cleaning products, which was sometimes the only warning you got that the starfish were around. Thanks, I said. I moved in and touched the door pad. It still had power and still recognized me. The front door unlocked. We moved through the house slowly, back behind me, his armor on a reflex trigger. Smell it, he asked. Yeah, fresh too, I said softly. The starfish didn't really hear the same as we did. They used pheromones as far as we could tell. I paused at one door. I didn't want to open it, but I had to. The room looked the same, but different. She'd grown in the time I was gone. The child's posters and decorations were gone, replaced with stuff more fitting of a teenage girl. There were still pictures of me on her dresser. I was a hero. I was also, probably, too late. Some hero. I turned to tell Pack that I'd seen enough and the floorboard shattered, and the thing, the starfish, burst from the under the house. Its cilia were pale pink, it was starving, as it grabbed my hand with the rough calcite teeth. My arm filled with fire as I managed to get my pistol into play. I pulled the trigger as my arm pulled off. Pack was turning back towards me, trying to get his rifle into play as I screamed, standing by my baby sister's room. Bootstrap personality loading successful. Morning, neural damage outside recommended levels. Case Omaha, override. Invoking most recent memories, the black dog stared at me as I clawed away the dirt and debris covering me. Danger close. I must have gotten buried underneath the debris. I stood up, looking around. My vision was comprised of my self-diagnostics reporting that one eye was no longer working. Discover source of anomalous signal appeared in my vision. It shifted as I breathed deep. There was a weird whistling sound when I did so. A wheezing accompanied it, like bellows with a split side. I was in pain, but I'd been hurt worse. Discover source of anomalous signal updated in my vision. Hold extraction point until relief, two minutes until evac appeared. I looked around. I was on top of a steep hill, only one side approachable. It only took me a split second to figure out that there was only one side that they could easily come at me. I, them, he, we, us. There were rocks that could be used to construct emergency fighting positions. Hold until relieved. Ensure safety of indigenous non-combatants. Two minutes until evac. Appeared. I got to work. I could see the eight of them, cute little things, like something my sister would have had a stuffy of. Another one, bigger, fluffier, sleek of fur, with a bushy furry tail, was curled up with them. Her head was shaved, down to her spine was shaved, but it didn't look like the probes and crude machinery attached to her body was hurting her. 
I need to make her and the little ones a shelter first to protect them from the shrapnel. Hold until relieved, two minutes remaining till evac. I didn't have a weapon, but that was okay. There are no dangerous weapons, only a dangerous men. And I am a ranger. I looked at one other little fuzzy one, staring at me with wide, curious eyes. Don't worry, we'll get out of here, and I'll get you some pie, I said, smiling. Hold until relieved, two minutes until evac. It smiled shyly back at me. Three weeks after Case Omaha, Talcon won. Halna Etek set the grav lifter down carefully. Her passenger, Miss Smith, had her eyes closed. Halna Etek had learned that she did not have a concentrate on her retinal link. The grav lifted, shut down, only the power plant online. This one may take a while, Miss Smith said. I'll be back sometime after dark. If I'm not back by morning, return and report me as overdue. Halna Etek nodded as the Terran female exited the craft pausing to make sure her suit was perfect. She approached the forest, walking towards the upraised hill that was crowned by trees that looked decades old. Halda Atek had checked. There had been a major fight between Terran forces and the Baylor attempting to build something called a screaming array out of Talcum brood carriers. The thought of brood carriers at the mercy of the precursor autonomous war machines, cold metal claws, nauseated her. Time bent by slowly until suddenly her comlink clicked. Halna Atek tourist flights, she said. Is this Halna Atek? System identification number 32827201732? A crisp voice asked. Yes, Halna Atek said. Hold, please, the voice said. The line clicked and the light tinkling music filled. Halna Atek frowned. Who calls me and just puts me on hold? The picture opened in a retinal link, and Halna Atek recognized the other Talkin immediately. The patterning of her fur, the premature silvering on her muzzle, and around her eyes, and the tips of her ears. Director Brentlek, Halna Atek said. Pilot, the director of the Talkin system said, her voice firm but not unfriendly. How may I help you? Halna Atek wondered, her mind worrying. What would the director herself want with her? You are assisting Miss Smith from the Confederate Grave Recovery Services, correct? The director asked. Yes, ma'am, Halna Atek said. I don't have to tell you how politically sensitive what you're doing is, do I? The director asked. No, ma'am, Halna Atek said. Terrans are a strange people, with many rituals and customs we may find strange. I realize that I'm asking a lot of you, but as a recently approved citizen, you know that you now carry a heavy burden. The Talcon matron said. Yes, ma'am. Halnatek answered. She didn't have to ask how she ended up a citizen. She could guess. Be careful. Be considerate. Be polite. That's all I'm asking, the director said. You may get strange quests, but as long as they are legal and do not provide too much discomfort, I'm asking you to give consent whenever you are able. Yes, ma'am, Halnatek said. Thank you, the director said and nodded and the call ended. Halmertek blinked and then gave a shuddering sigh. We are sisters now, you and I. Halmertek looked at the quiet forest and wondered who was out there. End of chapter. Chapter 321 The city was overcast, as was most of the planet. The rain thick with uptake from the orbital bombardments, the atomic weaponry, the directed nuclear weapons, and 
as always, the fires. It coated heat sinks, sensors, visors, armors, building, and the dead alike. The sun was barely visible, unable to warm up the landscape all the day despite having been summer before it had even began. In orbit, the precursor autonomous war machines had brought in reinforcements, obviously intending on dedicating the amount of metal needed to take the system away from the Lanarkland Unified Council. The people who lived on it and deny the Confederate military any semblance of victory. The PAWMs had announced their next wave of reinforcements by simply hull-jumping straight into the system and going guns clear. With a hundred Goliath-class harvester vessels, more than had been seen in any other place in the entire war. Their new tactic of making directly for planets, not bothering to secure control of the system first, was resulting in debris slowly spreading out from the system as the Confederate Space Force naval vessels had engaged them at ranges that they could not answer. Hundreds of millions had died already, but there were billions left to fight for. Buxton was riding on the back of the third armored medium tank. He dialed down his psychic shielding until he could hear the screams again after the first two attempted ambushes. He could hear it, the steady screaming from up ahead, and he had jumped back to the Captain Lee's tank. A member of the 868, the Wallsteel Dukes, to let her know that he could hear it. He was crouched down slightly, using a turret for cover while he knelt on the back of the medium tank. Medium, it weighs nearly 800 tons. Half of that is armor, Buxton thought to himself. His visor gave a pop of sparks and the rain of debris cleared off. Drones out, Captain Lee said from where she was half out of the tank of the commander's hatch. She wasn't wearing a helmet and Buxton kept having to restrain himself from yelling at her to put her helmet on. He could see the three red rounded end bars stacked at the base of her skull. The two tanks of the 868th and the one from the Great Herd sat idling. The Terran tanks, engines rumbling and the Lanarkland tanks harbor fans howling. Thankfully, Vuxton's armor automatically edited out the sounds. After a moment, she put her hand on the data link on her left temple and cursed. Give me a spiral search pattern. Let's see if that's the pattern. What? Vuxton asked over the channel. Here, look. We've got a problem, Captain Lee said. She made a tossing motion and Vuxton caught the data packet, opening it up and putting it on his visor with zero transparency. The building was largely gutted, small and medium precursor autonomous war machines inside. There was one of the big ones in there, heavy tracks and armored surfaces covering with guns. Strapped around the guns were civilians, Lanarkla and Neo-Sapiens both, Buxton could see where the cabling had been run through their bodies, woven around them, then sloppily welded to the hull. Some of them were screaming, others were weakly crying out, still others were just slumped against the hull of the war machine. He counted fifty in total, just on one side. Crap, he said. What? Wall 71 asked from where he was keeping an eye on Buxton's heat. Look! Buxton passed the data to his little green battle buddy. Crap, Fall 71 agreed. Captain Lee put her hand on the temple again and Buxton could tell that she was sub-vocalizing, talking to someone. After a minute, she looked around. 
All non-Terran units are to pull out of the city, she said. She gave a heaving breath. Third Armored and 8th Infantry will be handling this. She turned and looked at Fuxton. That includes Worst Alcon. Get your men out. Fuxton frowned and opened his mouth to object. They closed it. The battle tactical network was already updating. Let's go, men, Fuxton said, jumping down off the back deck. What? We're leaving? Naltek asked. Yes, Lance Corporal, we're leaving, Fuxton said. He began jogging down the torn-up asphalt road. Behind him, he could hear the sound of the Lanaklan hover tank turning around. The graviton generators howling as he balanced the weight. Fall back to log base tower. Buxton could tell everyone was angry. Non-Terran units had gone to the nearest log base, mentioning one of one of the first armored scout division was present. All of second top marine division and close to 200 of the Lanaklan hover tanks. A lot of people wanted to know what was going on, and even more were mad at the perceived slight of being pulled out of the city. Colonel O'Malley, in charge of Vuxton's 1st Assault Regiment, was hurrying over to him. Lieutenant Colonel Nguntu right behind her. Vuxton altered direction to meet up with her between the two of the 500-ton Lanaklan battle wagons. Your men out, she asked. First platoons all count for, ma'am, Buxton said. All Talcan elements have fallen back to log bases. She turned her visor clear and nodded. Trucker called everyone back who is in 3rd Armored and 8th Infantry. He doesn't want any non-Terrans to clear that city. Why? Buxton asked, following her into the main gate tunnel and moving through the 10-meter thick wall. General Vandu wants to order First Talcan back to the city. But General Kodraka overrode her, the Terran general said. She paused when they left the tunnel, looked at the few blocky buildings that were more or less blocks of armor, with a few doors cut in to access the inner spaces. She reached out and touched Buxton's helmet, and he saw the private channel icon flash. I'm ringing you because you're the highest ranking token. If you survive, someday you'll take my place. So you need to see what kind of crap show you can walk into through no fault of your own, she said. Yes, ma'am, Buxton said. He suddenly wished he was anywhere else, preferably being shot at. They moved into the bigger armored block, O'Malley moving down the center of the corridor. Troops in adaptive camouflage and light armor called a makeway or a make-a-hole as she approached and moved against the wall. The only exception was the six enlisted carrying a long loop of armored fiber optic table. Buxton and O'Malley both pressed against the wall and let the work detail get by. Finally, they reached the command center, or at least what was passing for one. Four days was a lot, especially when backed with nanoforges and troops who had decades and centuries of experience. But everything was pretty much ad hoc still. The holotank was pretty much just a tank itself, with enough of a flat surface around it to hold up data screens for individual data slates. The chairs were missing or had only the bases installed, and cabling still hung down from the walls, the plating that was supposed to cover it, either missing completely or leaned against the affixed plate next to it. Buxton's armor immediately pinged the holograms and living beings in the room, Colonel Kalnak, commander of Rockbase Town, was physically present, as was General Vandu. 
Trucker and Kokaka track were visible from the waist up. Buxton saw Trucker spit as his arms and upper body shook and he knew the big Terran was engaged in combat. Kokaktrakat had a cigarette in his mouth and obviously jogging. General Pepitonis, in charge of combined armor operations, was present physically. His face tired looking and the blackish tinge of propellant residue on his face. Planetary armor Great Most High A. Armoru was physically present, leaning against a wall and injecting a stim cone into his forearm. General killed Trakakak's face and upper torso, armored all in black, suddenly lit up, reflecting rapid flashes. Around him, little bubbles reading Daka 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 floated up in the hologram. The Trianidad infantry hordes are still engaged, Amadi whispered. General Kodraka and General Almunka were present virtually. Kodraka with a cigarette in his mandibles, and Almunka sitting in a comfortable chair. Her greyish-green hands folded over adaptive camouflage-covered knee. Colonel O'Malley, welcome, Colonel Kudraka said, taking a drink from a plastic bottle. This should be enough. Moment, Drucker's hologram said. God damn it, fl-. The hologram cut out the speech. Just listen, Trucker, Kudraka said. Pay attention to your fight. I'll tack you the transcript. Roger, two o'clock, Penapalm, your other two o'clock, you moron, Trucker said. Kodraka made a motion, and the sound from Trucker was muted. All right, we're here to discuss my obviously unpopular decision, General Kodraka said, folding his hands and crossing his blade arms. You pulled a further my power armor troops out of that city, General Vandu snarled. They're needed to sweep the buildings. Kodraka nodded slowly. In normal circumstances, yes. You pulled 9th Warborg Division in to take their place, completely disrupting my war plan, Vandu added. You still have 80% of your power armor troops. 9th Warborg can easily fill the gap. They've got the most experience at city fighting against precursor autonomous war machines out of every unit in the task force angry duck, Kudraka said. Except first Talcott, she shot back. Buxton was tempted to tell her not to bring him into it. General, do you understand why I pulled out the non-Confederate forces out of the city? General Kudraka asked. She shook her head. I do, a armorer said, pushing himself off the wall and trotting up by the half-completed tactical holotank. General Vandu turned, opening her mouth and then shut it. The Type 3 autonomous war machines have attached civilians to their heavy armored vehicles in hopes that it'll make any who face them pause for a critical millisecond for them to get the upper hand, Ayamaru said. He shook his arm as he injected the stim comb into it. Planet Lan and Neosapiens obviously taken prisoner from the city's population that have not yet been placed into what has been called the Screaming Array by troops. The power armor troops can go in to free them. Mandu said. Bayamaru laughed, a sound like a gorilla jumping up and down on bagpipes. And when they rush in, they can wave their magic wands and turn all the precursor machines into soap bubbles, so that they don't have to fight against dozens, scores of precursor machines, and hope that the hostages don't get injured. How dare you? Mandu started to say. He's right, Romani added. Standard procedure for the big ones is to fire off the anti-personnel strips if power armored troops get close, which would turn the hostages into 
Did I ask for your opinion, Colonel? Vandu asked, turning and glaring at the lower-ranking woman. O'Malley shut her mouth and stepped backwards to stand next to Bookster. The fact that the Lanarkland troops are working next to Confederate troops is politically charged enough. But when, not if, when it got out that the Lanarkland troops took part in what was going to be a slaughter, there would be reprisals by Allied species troops as well as civilians, a armorer Ooze said. He undid his canteen, a Space Force version, not a Lanarkland one, and took a drink. Recalling 1st Armored Scar Division as well as Talcon 1st Marine Division, that ensures that the only ones taking part in the fighting in the city are Confederate forces. Vandu pointed at Buxton. These people are a part of the Confederacy. These people were Neo-Sapiens less than three years ago, deemed unsuited even for cannon fodder and not even trusted with weapons, Ayamaru said. He looked at Buxton. No offense. None taken, Buxton said, rocking 471's profane emoji. All anyone will see is rather than fight a difficult battle, the Confederacy sent in what the inhabitants of this planet will see as the Unified Military Council forces, if my own forces, General Crete, or the Tarkin Marines are sent in, Aamaru said. So you're just gonna force the 3rd Armor and 8th Infantry to wade through the gore? Vandu asked. Aamaru shrugged. I'm unbothered by it, but either way, I've spent centuries inside a tank. I no longer even see what it is in my gun sight beyond the target. He took another swallow of his canteen. Tying hostages to equipment is standard procedure in the fights that I've been a part of. He moved back to the wall and leaned against it. Nothing convinces local guerrillas not to shoot at your tanks like tying their mates and the young to the hull. Space Force doesn't do that. General Kudrunka said. Any more? A armorer shrugged. You outgrew something that we still routinely practice. It is why I am comfortable following your orders. There was an uncomfortable silence. So, um, it's okay to have the Terrans wade through the blood? Randu started again. General, compose yourself, Kudrunka said, lighting another cigarette. I realize that things are difficult with the Suds issue. But attempt to comport yourself as an officer. Buxton managed to keep from snickering. And to answer your question, yes. It is acceptable for the Confederate Space Force to fight their way through even though there are civilians attached to vehicles, Kodraka said. Which is why I'm having 108th military intelligence pinpoint the houses that ambushers are waiting and using artillery to destroy them and damage the ambushers. A high-impulse thermobaric pulse round from the poor walk missile system should be acceptable to assure those poor bastards don't feel any pain. Vandu clenched her jaw. We can't send anyone in. The lesser machines will rip them up. We can't send forces against him. Just firing the weapons near them will severely injure them or kill them. Kudraka leaned against his hologram. They're already dead. Vandu turned her head away. Talcon Forge Worlds. I've managed to get some records from Second Talcon untangled. Nothing follows. Ackletack Free Flight. What's wrong with the data? Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. The data timestamps are messed up. Apparently, there's temporal warfare going on out there. Looks like someone keeps making the forces out there relive the same events over and over, trying to change the outcomes. 
Nothing follows. Tinvaro gripping hands. Will that work? To keep fighting the same day over and over until you win. Nothing follows. Terrasol. No. Nothing follows. Talcum Forge worlds. Ah! Where did you come from? Okay, now I sound like the Trianidad. Nothing follows. Tinvaro gripping hands. Why doesn't it? Nothing follows. Terrasol Mill. Because Terrans don't do the same thing over and over, there is um, anomalies. There's always anomalies. Someone who remembers each day. Someone who does something different. It then causes a butterfly effect. The best bet is to rewind the day for you as you have fresh troops. But leave the enemy troops still in the same linear time stream so that they're damaged and have heavy casualties. Nothing follows. Akultak free flight. Except that won't work on Terrans. That of forges and clone banks means you just rearm, refit, and reinforce. Nothing follows. Terrasol Mill. That's one of the reasons we have those protocols. Nothing follows. Tinvaro gripping hands. Wait. Could it be that's what's happening to the Suds? Nothing follows. Terrasol Mill. Who knows? The Suds is clugged together by a hodgepodge that's been half blown out a dozen times so far. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Whatever happened to the Suds is more than just temporal warfare. The Sud system is built to handle that due to the Second Temporal War. So, there has to be something else that has affected the Suds to cause the Red Dot. Tarkin Porch Worlds. The Second... What? Nothing follows. Terrasol. What? Tarkin Porch Worlds. What do you mean, what? Terrasol. Sorry, time lag. Temporal resonance issues. Can't understand you. Manted Free Worlds. You get used to it. End of chapter. Chapter 322. Buxton sat in a rack of expended missile pods, wearing only his adaptive camouflage and light body armor. It still made him snort that standard uniform was armor that covered his back, chest, and the back of his arms and elbows, the front of his legs and knees. It was light, all angles, and let him have full range of movement without the plate sticking out. It could also absorb the kinetic shock of a high-vee route that would have blown through an armor that corporate security had tried to give him way back when he was a janitor. The magnetic accelerator rifle in his hands could have shot clean through the corpsec armor on a lower power setting. The pistol on his hip would have done the same on a low velocity setting. The weapons of corpsec had tried to give him couldn't shoot through a thin overlapping wall steel plates in the soles of his boots. The heavy loading frame moved up and dropped another set of missile pods, still reeking of unburned propellant. Next to him, and the driver thumped away, back to where the empty pods were being delivered. One thing he had learned was how to be somewhat out of the way, but easily acceptable, when he had some downtime. That way, the troops could tell that he was just sitting around, so they wouldn't feel like they were disturbing him. And also, that anything that might be said would be off the record. Buxton Staterling pinged him to let him know that someone was looking for him. He was surprised to see that it was a member of the armored herd. He snapped his rifle back together and waited. The Lanaclan moved between the stacks of expended pods, dodging out of the way of the loading frame, then moved up to him. He was dressed in a standard unified military dress, a flank covering, a vest over a sleeved shirt, sash, and helmet. 
He had on equipment harness and Vuxton noticed the Lanaclan only had a pistol that was flashing purple warning that it was unloaded and unsafe. You're Vuxton or the Artalkan officer, correct? The Lanaclan asked. Yes, Vuxton said, putting a slight question tone to the end of it. Armored vehicle primary gun operator, ninth class Hootler O, the Lanaclan said. I'm not sure I should be speaking to you, but I wish to, and I feel the need to speak with the Tarkin. Speaking to an officer will be seen of less of a problem, in my opinion. Buxton had been around Lanaclan for most of his life, so he easily recognized how nervous the Lanaclan tanker was. Go ahead, operator, oh, Adler, oh, Buxton said. As Ho Adler O shuffled in place for a long moment, Vuxton suddenly understood why so many Terrans took up bad habits like smoking, chewing, or twisting. It gave her being something to do with the hands to fill the awkward spaces. I was born and grew up in Tolkien, Ho Adler O suddenly blurted out. My parents were sent there by the Penstetent Corporation, and they worked as guest services at one of the resorts. I see. Buxton said carefully. The Lanaclan was quiet for a long moment, still nervously shuffling. I joined the Unified Military Forces so my family would no longer accrue debt because of me and traded my promotions for waivers for my family. Ho-oh, Adelaide-oh, said quietly. He looked around and leaned close to speak quietly. I volunteered for dangerous assignments in order to ease my family's debt so that my father and mother no longer had to work in risky factories. I understand, Buxton said. He tapped the rifle. That is kind of how I ended up here. I knew you would understand, the Lanaclan said. That is why I came to see you. My family was there when the precursors attacked. Buxton just nodded, swallowing thickly as he remembered the crowd charging down the street, waving, tearing at themselves and each other, killing anyone they encountered. And afterwards... I received a communication from the office of someone called, um, he touched his data link, Brentlick, who is the system director. Oh, Buxton felt his stomach drop and resisted the urge to change his grip on his rifle. My family had survived, the Lanicklad said. Buxton managed not to breathe with sigh of relief. You are with the Confederate military, correct? Oh, Adela O asked. Yes, Dark Marines are a part of Confederate military's order battle, Buxton said. The most high in charge of my unit is working with the Confederate military, Ho Adela O.O. said. Yes. I'm here to ask you, Lieutenant, who would I talk to in order to have my family taken care of by the Confederate military in case I'm killed here? He leaned forward conspiratorially again. I do not trust the Unified Council to apply a payment for my death after the cost of my tank has deducted from my death bonuses to my parents' debt. Buxton felt sick. He reached up and tapped his comlink, going through the rectal menus quickly. It took him a second to find it. Go talk to Confederate Military Legal Services, Buxton said, tossing the Lanaclan the directions. They'll be able to help you. The Lanaclan shuffled nervously for a moment. Buxton sighed. Trooper Ho Adela O.O., report immediately to the Confederate Legal Services to have them examine the status of your family still residing in the Tarkin system, and to ensure that they are correctly listed as your next of kin. Thank you, sir, Lanaclan said. He gave the two fists of the pectoral salute of the Lanaclan and trotted off. Buxton shook his head as he dug into his top pocket, 
He lucked out and had his piece of stim gum left. Being an officer was complicated, he thought to himself. Niamara U trotted into the battle center two days ago and had only partially finished, stopping just inside the door and looking around. It should have taken weeks or months to get this massive room online, but the Terran's Confederate military forces were at all stations. Niamara O could see multiple holotanks set up, two places for virtual meetings and multiple monitors all manned. It was only standing there for a few moments when a Terran moved up and nodded. How can I help you, sir? The Terran asked. Ayamara O liked the Terran honorific. It had a certain weight and a feel that it even long drawn out resting of rank of his own military did not have. It was short, quick, and carried everything he needed. I wish to access the digital battlefield. I am interested in the tactics of the Confederate military in taking their objectives. Ayamara O said. One moment, sir, the Terran said. He had interesting-looking markers on his lapels. A armorer couldn't remember all the Terran ranks, but since there wasn't crossed rifles, he knew the Terran wasn't a Marine. Since the middle point of the marker didn't have a circle with a star, he knew he wasn't aerospace. No fierce bird on top of the rank meant it was a navy. The insignia was a point up to the stripes, and it was missing a weird little wedge in the middle. So he wasn't Space Force. Plus, it was angled line on top of the round line and the bottom all in black, rather than gold or black weird ones of officers. Ayamaru was proud of himself that he was able to quickly deduce that the Terran in front of him was Terran Army enlisted. Now, if he could just remember what three-pointed bars over the two round bars meant beyond sergeant, he'd feel better. All right, sir, the Terran said. I verified your ID and ensured that you are cleared for this area and the information you are requesting. Any live streaming data has a 60 second delay for non-commanders, just so you know that. Ah, security, I approve, Sergeant, Ayamaru said, seeing if he was correct about the ranks. The Terran nodded, then turned and made a waving motion. If you'll follow me, sir. Ayamaru trotted over to the single station. His tendrils curling in surprise when the seat turned liquid-looking and reconfigured to be more comfortable for a Lanarkland. The screen unfolded five more screens that arranged themselves in a highly expensive but optimal configuration. All right, sir. Have a seat, and the interactive enhanced virtual reality system will guide you through what you are looking for, as well as assist your understanding. The Terran said, "Thank you," Ayamaru said, settling down near the seat. The Terran backed up, and the small area suddenly grew walls and a ceiling, muffling and eliminating the sounds from the rest of the room. The screens waited until he was comfortable, then moved to a proper position and made a minute adjustments until they were perfect. He knew that somehow the system was tracking his eye movements. A virtual keyboard and touch context menu popped up right as in voice. A Terran female voice spoke in his ear. If you need assistance, simply state assistance request and I will assist you immediately, the voice said. Thank you, Ayamaru said. You're welcome, Grand Most High of the Armor Ayamaru, the voice said. Ayamaru tapped his way through the menu, slowly picking up speed as he got more comfortable. The system was amazing. It had all the data he could possibly want to learn about. A small part of him was surprised that they would risk an intelligence failure on the scale. 
Then he realized, with a chill, that the Terrans didn't care if he knew the specifications of the Terran main battle tanks, the maximum effective range of the magnetic accelerator rifle, the blast radius of a standard implosion grenade, or the flight seeding of an aerospace striker. He took a minute to calm himself at the unspoken declaration of superiority, that he was laughably outclassed to the point that the Terran military doubted the data would even do him any good. He started simply tapping at the icon for the task force Angry Duck. From there it broke down into various units, task space force fleets, the aerospace wings, the navy fleets. He was surprised to see that there were wet water surface and subsurface craft in operation on the planet. The marine expeditionary forces and the army, well, armies. It took him a minute to navigate 7th Army V-Corps. He sat and stared. V-Corps had nine infantry divisions, three tank divisions, aerospace assets, artillery divisions, two cavalry divisions, a Talcan 1st Marine division, and even more units. He was surprised to find his forces listed between 3rd Armour and 38th Armour. A armor Ood quickly checked and found that his units were listed as depot maintenance and not in combat. He did further checks and found out that maintenance part was some polite fiction but virtually all these tanks were undergoing heavy maintenance, something called service life extension protocols. Curious, he tapped third armor and immediately blinked at the sheer size of it. So far, it had been pretty standard, a foreign interface, sure, but pretty standard data. There were three tabs that a armoru had never seen before. Gestalt system stream, warning, combat engaged. Social media stream, warning, combat engaged. Battle Tactical Netstream, Drucker Updates and Patches. The last one was locked out and he watched the sheer amount of data that was registering on it. A armor ooze sat for a moment, thinking about the fact that the Confederate military had dedicated channel entirely for one person's input into the tactical network. He had to admit, he was curious about what the raw data looked like, but decided not to go down that route. He checked the social media stream, curious about it. It required him to load up three additional pieces of software in his data link, all of them digitally signed by the Confederate intelligence. Why not, he thought. The software and firmware installed and he entered the social media stream. Immediately, he was bombarded by short messages, text emblazoned pictures, short videos, all started streaming by. Each one had hearts or smiley, laughing, crying, angry faces. Green arrows pointing up, green arrows pointing down. All streaming past. Along with small icons of Terran male genitalia. If you built it, they'll draw a dick on it, floated up in A. Armourou's mind as he snorted in amusement. He idly wondered if his second great most high had realized who had drawn the Terran genitalia on the back of his helmet yet. I did it, and it amused me, he thought. His data link replied with an image of a armorer laughing, tinted and angled as such a way to seem slightly benevolent. He recognized the image. It was from where he'd been talking to Trucker three days ago. Assistance required, a armorer said. The EVI popped up. How may I help you, Great Grand Most High, our armorer, she asked. He told her quickly what he wanted, and she helped him put together and then sent out anonymously to his subordinate. After he sent it to the intended recipient, he went back to looking at the stream. One caught his eye. 
was a fearsome-looking Terran main battle tank shooting at everything around it, surrounded by explosions and fire. At the top of the image, it read, Your old obsolete tank. At the bottom half of the image was yellow citrus fruit and small, weak-looking tracks, a rubber band shooting made-up piece of wood and a single rubber band on the front, and a pathetic-looking flag with crudely drawn Space Force logo on a broken tree branch at the back. The bottom text read, Your modern state-of-the-art super tank. Underneath the image was saying, It's an older meme, but it checks out. A armorer Oo laughed at that one. He understood and got that. He added a heart logo from his personal account and let the images and text scroll by. The next one that caught his eye took a moment for him to understand. On the left was a female Rigelian in a flexing pose that showed off all of her muscles and her impressively swollen mammary glands. A armorer Oo frowned at that. He didn't remember them having mammary glands. He checked the database real quick to say that, no, they didn't. The males did. For some reason, the Heidi detailed drawing was inaccurate, but still was accumulating approval. That only had a thong. Above her head it read, Your previous duty station. On the right was a malnourished-looking Terran female, all muddy and dirty with small insects and wavy lines coming off of her. Hayamaru looked it up. Apparently the line stood for a foul odor, and the logo, your current dusty station, above it. The two images were represented on the lower half, only the text was different. Above the Rigelian was, your current duty station, and above the foul-smelling, small, dirty, malnourished, terrible female, was the logo, your next duty station after two years. It took him a minute to understand it, and when he did, he added an approval icon as he laughed. It's true, it's so true. The video he stopped on was strange. It showed a Lana Clan tank firing desperately at a precursor that was pushing it back until the sheer face of a cliff blocked it off. Suddenly, there was an annoying tune playing on a horn, and the camera angle changed to show the edge of the cliff from the bottom, as if the viewer was a tank commander. A massive Terran main battle tank flew off the edge, then went in slow motion, the tracks clattering, the guns firing. The Terran tank commander was plainly visible as she gave a wink, a thumbs up, and a smile that made her white teeth glint from the blackwash glare of the tank's guns. The Lanaklan TC looked up and said, It's so beautiful, as it flew overhead. It went to full speed as the Terran tank landed on the precursor tank, which had wide open shocks, white and black eyes that were spinning in surprise. Debris flew out as the Terran tank played the annoying abrasive tune on the horn and roared away. The video made no sense to Ayamaru, but it was apparently popular and had been shared to the Armored Herd network, where it had been watched nearly 15,000 times and had 6,000 approvals. Curious, he checked the timestamp for when it had hit the Lanaklan channels. First, he was surprised to see that the Terran Battlefield Network now included the Great Herd social media stream. Second, that as the Great Grand Most High, he had access to such things as morale baseline, engagement level, troop stress level, and other social science data. When the video was seen by the first Lanark it had been rapidly been shared. As it had been passed around, morale saw an actual uptick. Ayamaru checked a few videos and was startled to see even the most grizzled and hardened tanker watching the video 
and bursting out with laughter as the Terran tank crushed the precursor and raced away. Another video popped up, crossing from the third armor media stream to the Armored Herd channel. It was a short video of a Terran female tanker in her body armor and uniform, leaning forward and touching the side of a cringing Lanikalan tanker's face. She said, Just say my name. As the image zoomed in on her mouth and the Lanikalan's ear, the image switched to the same Lanikalan, desperately firing his TC's weapons as the main gun fired, hitting a precursor machine that far outweighed and outgunned the tank. The Lanakalan looked up and screamed, Insane female Lieber! The Terran main battle tank dropped out of the sky and crushed the precursor tank before roaring away in a cloud of debris and dust. Como and play saves lives, flashed on the screen. A armorer found himself laughing, adding his own approval to the image. He saw that his men's morale raised slightly again. He had meant to come in and watch the battlefield third armor's point of view. Instead, as he asked the EVI for assistance, he found himself helping craft image macros, memes, and short videos with the help of the 432nd Psychological Warfare Company. Second Great Grand Most High of Armor, Var Arnara Ash, saw that he had a message on the base data net. Curious, he opened it. It was the still image of when he found his helmet with a Terran male genitalia drawn crudely on the back and glow-in-the-dark green paint stick, with the caption, Who drew a slong on my hat? These tendrils were curled and his crests inflated with anger. There was more to the image, and it scrolled down. It showed him glaring at the Terrans around him, holding his hat, his body language offended. You thought it was levers, it said. There was more to the image. He scrolled down. It showed an animated image of the Great Grand Most High of Armor, a Arboru, laughing wildly, almost insanely, all six eyes wide open, braying his laughter. But it was my, your superior. Va'ana Ash curled his tendrils and faded his crests in annoyance. Surely the Great Grand Most High could act his age and rank. End of chapter. Chapter 323 What's next? Arod asked, looking around as he straightened up and put his hands into a small of his back, leaning back and feeling the synthetic bones in his spine pop as it realigned. There was a silence for a moment. Sam! Arod tried again. Sorry, was distracted, Sam said. Something strange happened. Uh, what was the question? What's next? Arad squatted and started picking up his tools. Molly picked up some of the other tools, holding them out for Harod as he put them away. Molly's hard armor shell were blackened, carbonized gouge down the side from where he'd been hit with it 1.21 gigawatts of juice from the temporal stabilizer system when Harod had thrown power to it. Phasic energy processes, Sam said. Are you all right? Harod asked. Sam was silent for a minute. Yeah, I'm all right, I think. There's a lot of damage. Every little bit that we fix, it enabled the damage control systems to come online and identify more systems in need of repair. Sam gave a long sigh. At least we're getting the automatic repair systems working. How bad is it? Harad asked. Basic energy processes are in really bad shape. 
Half of them are down, and at least three-quarters of the ones still working are operating way outside of tolerances, Sap said. But, uh, I do have some good news. What? Herod asked. He coughed, his chest aching, bringing up a thick fluid. He raised his face shield and spit it onto the floor. I figured out where the anomalous brood carrier signal is coming from, Sam said. It's in the phasic arrays, so even though you'll be bringing up an automated repair system, you'll need to run Overwatch and do some fine-tuning under my direction. All right, why can't we just let the automatic system do the work? Arad asked. He closed his face shield and then counted his tools. He had three 10mm sockets and two 10mm wrenches left. The 10mm had a habit of scurrying away when nobody was looking. The blue line appeared to show him where to go, and he started walking, weaving between the vast machines of the lethal trauma synthesis manifolds. Robots had started crawling over it, replacing blown-out servers in the racks. Everywhere he looked, there were dozens of robots that looked to her rod like crabs or spiders crawling over the server racks. Because I don't want to lock out the brood carrier signal, it's providing stability across the systems that kept crashing prior to the brood carrier signal leaking across the system, Sam Ewell said. He gave a low sound of pain. The next wave is coming, Harrod. Call me Harry, Sam, Harrod said. How many? Fifty thousand in this batch, refining facility orbiting Saturn. There's Pubvians, Dranidad, Galticans, all mixed in. How? How did they manage to upload all of these people? I don't even think half of them had suds installed. They're all shocked to be here, Sam said. He gave a choking laugh. Most of the non-Terrans are shocked they're seeing the system. Where to now, Sam? Harad asked. Stay with me, Sam. Focus on my voice. Back to the Matron, Sam said. He gave a laugh that was brittle, jacket, a sound of a man barely holding on to the ledge makes. Herod kept talking, not about anything in particular, just about whatever he could think of. He told Sam what it was like growing up in the Deneb Digital Sentience Foundry, talking about the first trip to Terrasol, talking about his teachers in university. Herod could tell that it was helping. Sam only raved, screamed and cried a little bit compared to the last time. The maglev slowed to a stop, letting Herod out onto the platform. Human and Trianidad and Pavian ships made of pale white energy flickered back and forth, struggling with one another, cowering in front of each other, killing each other. Herod watched carefully. His arm still burned with cold fire from the last time he'd been grazed by the phasic energy residue, but he'd learned. There. The gap formed just as he'd had last time, and Herod ran through it dodging out of the way of a Trianidad who was backing up from half a dozen Pavians who had whitish blood running down their jaws, striking a pair of Terrans fighting, each using a blade arm snapped off of a Trianidad and managing to get around a Trianidad beating another Trianidad to death with a severed human arm. He managed to get through, stopping on the catwalk. He held onto the rail, bending over, gasping for breath coughing up more of the thick, clear fluid. It tasted like regret. Wally rolled up next to him, the little maintenance's robot's tracks clattering. It peeped with sympathy and patted his leg as he finished hacking up the thick fluid, 
Sam, are you there? Harrod gasped. Only sobs answered him. Harrod kept following the blue line, started to talk again, telling Sam about the time he was visited the hate anvils of Mars, how he'd been forced to wear a protective frame and a protective suit as well as heavy psychic shielding, how the chrome wall steel coated mantis skulls adorned pillars next to the skulls of other species that the Terrans had defeated. Finally, Sam was quiet for a long moment as Harrod walked down the hallway, just past the heavy security gate of the personal Metron system facility for the section of the layer that Harrod was in. I've got the Metron's codes for the phasic energy facility of Alpha Layer, Sam said after a moment. Be careful there, Harrod. It's the oldest layer and the largest. It also has no layers between the surface of the layer and the anomaly that is a partially fired Big Bang here. He gave a sharp giggle. Don't look directly into the sun, Harrod. It'll be bad for your eyes. Describe bad, Harrod said, waiting for the heavy foot-thick door to raise. Your eyes might become new sentient life, or you might end up seeing all of eternity, Sam said. Again, Harrod answered. Sam laughed and then suddenly stopped. Harry, remember how I told you there was some serious black ice in here? Kind of, Harrod admitted. You should see the ice around the Metron system. Sam laughed again, trailing off into sobs for a moment before erupting into a loud, riotous laughter for a moment. It's pre-attack, right? You're a hacker, supposedly the best one out there, Harrod said. He paused, leaning against the wall, grasping for air again. Sam laughed again. Harry, I'm a standard hacker. Nobody uses ice anymore. Well, they do. But not like this stuff. Explain it to me then, Rod said. He knelt down on one knee, bowing his head, hacking up more of the clear fluid. Modern intrusion countermeasure software, ICE to use the slang, is more or less advanced firewalls, design theory, hardware security, stuff like that. It's been changed over the eons, but it is relatively the same. Just more advanced now, Sam said. His voice was firming up, steadying out. But this stuff, this stuff is crazy. Crazy how? Harrod lifted his faceplate, spitting out more of the fluid, while Wally patted his back. Imagine taking a high-end cutting-edge warboy, now arm him with teeth, give him a full roaming access to the system, and allow him to devote computing power to operating outside his home system. Make him able to disrupt sentient's vital processes, Sap said. Now armor and arm him up. Make sure he's got the ability to go toe-to-toe with anyone who attempts to penetrate the system. Is that even legal? Harrod asked. No, it hasn't been. Every now and then people try and legalize it. Or it gets legalized, but an ice... Well, ice is someone, Sam said. Or it tears into rival corporations or government computer systems. Even goes so far as to attack people. Harrod spit a few times and slapped his face plate closed slowly standing up. Okay, and? Harrod asked. Wally was patting his leg as he slowly got his breathing under control. The Matron system is guarded by some serious intrusion countermeasure VIs. We're talking barely a step down from you or me. Heavy armor, autonomous attack defense programs, Sam said. We're talking real, real ugly stuff. 
The portals into the Matron's computer system are all guarded by at least a dozen of them, not to mention less ice, white and grey, not mobile systems. These ones stay at the portal. All of them have portals rigged with dead man switches. You'd have to Uncle Leo your way past them. All right, San, you're drifting. Why is this important? Harrod asked. Because, Harry, Sam said quietly, almost whispering. The Matrons went off about two hours ago. It looks like the damaged file I found in the buffer and sent for repair was a transmission engram. Since it used a personal transport system rather than the materials handling system, I have to assume that it's a living person. Sam's voice held a slight edge. Which means... I'm not alone in here, Harrod said softly. Exactly, Sam said. Who is it? Do you know? Harrod asked. He found his own stride slowing, taking smaller steps. I can't get into the Matron system's computer records or any other system, Sam admitted. Even the smallest port is heavily guarded. I might be able to access the cameras by going through the security system main systems. Crap, Harrod paused. Sam, I'm right at the doors to the main transmission chamber, Harrod said. I open this door, I'm inside. With you in there, I can probably get in simpler, Sam said. I'm going to ride sidecar on you through the biometrics monitor. If I get a chance, I'll jump to one of the internal cameras if it will let me re-establish a gateway back to the main system that isn't guarded by the nasty ice. I take it you don't want to try and take it on, even from inside their own system, Harrod asked. He had a vague idea of how hacking could be accomplished mainly from popular media. Sab laughed. No, Harry, I'm not taking on this stuff. See, uh, a lot of the high-end systems looked like they were proprietary to various nation-states that existed before the Manted attack. I thought Terra Sol was unified back then, Harad said. He leaned against the wall, waiting for the dizzy spell and the pain in his knees and back to retreat. Harry, Terra Sol has never been unified, Despite what history documents show, they're almost proud of that fact, Sam said. I thought that the different nation-states were more a return to historical primitivism for tourism, Harrod admitted. Yeah, that's what they want you to think, Sam said, his voice gaining an edge. Who? Who's they? Sam laughed, trailing off into giggles. After a moment, his voice came back, firmer this time. The ancients... Age of paranoia, ancients. They built this, crafted Terrasol in some strange image after the Manted attack was repulsed, and some kind of echo of this, of the ancients who built this. The giggle slowed and stopped. So you're not going to try to get past the ice? Harrod asked. Not a chance. It's old age of paranoia stuff. Hamburger Kingdom stuff. Before they took the Hamburger King moniker, Sam whispered. Look, be careful. Whoever's in there, they might be from the Great Glassy. They might have tried to escape through the Matrons and got stuck in the buffer. The timestamp was completely garbled. Which means they might be a screaming one, Harrod guessed. Correct, Sam said. All right, I booked in. Pulse the security. It'll think I'm a biometric monitor program for high-security VIPs. Harrod sighed. I'm ready. Go. Harrod reached forward and pressed the hand scanner, waiting for it to log him in. It took a moment before it beeped and the door slid open. A foot and a half thick of wall steel high security door. 
which made him chuckle. Age of paranoia, indeed, he thought to himself. That thick of a door inside a high-security facility, located in a high-security layer, built around a hidden and secrecy-shrouded Big Bang event, located in an unregistered and concealed dimension. The ancients loved their security. Their paranoia was almost sexual, he thought, as he stepped inside the square room and waited. The door closed behind him, locked, and then he put his hand on the scanner plate. When the lenses rotated out, he put his face shield against them and waited for his eyes to be scanned. The system thought itself for a long moment. Then the lights went green and the door slid sideways into the wall. Harrod headed down the hallway towards the primary matrons and its control room. The corridor felt icy for some reason. The lights seemed to buzz above him and the shadows were close and twisted. When he opened the door to the control room, just before the master control room that the matron's chamber sat against, the far wall, he walked in, acting like nothing was wrong, like there wasn't a naked woman leaning against the far set of computer workstation consoles. She looked to be youthful middle-age, her body unmarked by scars or imperfections, her features sharp and severe, but still pretty. Her eyes were gunmetal grey, and her car and cut black hair was sweaty and slightly dishevelled. Her rods on board systems gave her a scan as soon as he saw her. Heart, 245 BPM. Blood pressure, 240 over 130. Warning, cardiac arrest imminent. Hello, she said. Her next words were nothing but gibberish to her rod. Hang on, she's using pre-glassing dialect from Iron Fence, the Francoise. Sam printed across Herodrod's retinas, loading a translation program. A thin drop of pinkish fluid ran from the woman's ear as she wiped it with one finger, looking at it for a moment, then reaching out and licking her fingertip. She babbled more at Herod, picked up what looked to Herod to be a pack of cigarettes and an old-style flint and fluid lighter, and walked out of the room towards the mat chamber itself. Follow her, Sam said. Wait! Rod said. He moved forward to where the human woman had been standing. He'd seen her do something with her hands, sliding something behind the thick, old-style liquid crystal display monitor. He looked behind the monitor and saw the strangest thing. It was a standard VR visor, old-style goggles type. Only the side had been popped open with several data cables and wires attached to it, as well as tip switches having been altered. He lifted it up and looked at it carefully giving it a solid white of the display away from him. It was flashing tens of thousands of milliseconds at times a second. The display part of the goggles overclocked and running fast enough that the goggles were hot in his hands. Images were moving so fast that even the digital sentience with a high-quality optics, he couldn't see more than one out of every fifty or hundred of the images, and then at a weird angle. His head started to ache. It suddenly cut off. The display is going dark. What was that, Sam? Rod asked. I don't know. Never seen anything like that before. What was she doing with it? Sam asked. Rod dropped it back behind the flat screen. Watching it for some reason. Rod looked around the room slowly, bringing up his memories of how it had looked when he passed through it the first time with Wally. A dozen keyboard positions were shifted. The monitors with them tilted slightly. 
the six computers at the center of the concentric use had been shifted, the monitors and the keyboards out of place. The chairs moved. Could she go into any system if she had the passwords or logins? Harad asked. Sam snorted. Doubtful. Is there a chance her login and password still work? Harad asked. Sam was quiet for a moment. Possibly. Another long moment passed while Sam spoke to someone that only he could see. The lights dimmed and came back up. Harad, there was a massive power draw, like someone just used the matrons, Sam said. Damn, the system is completely locked down, even inside the facility. Could she have left? Harad asked. Scanning for any identical draws? No, none. Not unless she put herself back into an emergency buffer or something, Sam said. Harod, I've got another batch incoming. Nearly a quarter million. Don't know how long I'll be gone. Take care then, Sam. I'll figure this out, Harod said. I'm in what's left of the hazardous environment frame wearing hazardous environment armor. She's a naked Terran. I should be fine. I'll be back, Sam said. Harod felt suddenly lonely and reached down to pat the Wally's head. Wally responded by hugging him. The door opened, and the human female stood in the doorway. Heart rate, 55 BPM. Blood pressure, 125 over 82. Harod frowned as she stood there for a moment, almost as if she was posing. She put the metal-cased lighter in between her teeth and bared her teeth at a smile. She slowly peeled the cellophane off the top of the pack of cigarettes, opened it, tore the foil free and tossed the foils to the side. She withdrew one cigarette, turned it upside down and put it back in the pack. She then took out the cigarette, closed the pack, replaced the lighter with the cigarette and then lit it. Her rod frowned. The movements were smooth, practiced, as if it was something she had done for a long time. She exhaled in a cloud of bluish-white smoke. So, um, who are you? She asked in perfect confederate standard. Maybe you can help me. I think I might be lost. Arod nodded slowly. You didn't work here, he asked. He watched his retinal display, which was currently running her biometrics to detect if she was lying or telling the truth. No, she said. I was in transit and everything seemed to stutter and get really weird. Then I was here. Arod looked at her closely. Her hair didn't hide the data link. He didn't see any cybernetics. She looked perfectly normal. Truth, his implant stated. Can you help me get somewhere where I can put on some clothing? She asked. Truth flashed. Arod suddenly wished Sam was present. Sure, follow me. We can stop by a survival locker on the way, Arod said. He crossed over, opening the door to the matron's chamber. It had only three doors. The one he was standing in. The one on the left that led to the preparation room and the one on the right, which was the receiving room. Matras was normally only done after a person being transmitted had been sedated. Harod moved over, looking at the console that Sam had taught him how to use in the four previous Matrons control rooms. He carefully brought up the menu, aware the Terran woman was staring at him at the screen, and he punched in the code for the destination he wanted. Do you need to be sedated? Harod asked as he watched her sit down her back against the wall. No. She shook her head and smiled. Truth. All right, Rod said. He closed the door. For a second, there was nothing but a blinding whine, then darkness. He had no idea he had left behind 24 other versions of the woman across from him. 
but that was okay. They were all dead, their brains completely fried. End of chapter. Chapter 324. Secure Archive. Black box projects had existed throughout human history. They'd been under different names, different types, but always they applied technology to problems. From making arrows in yurts in secret to surprise a foe a tribe had lured into attacking a defenseless encampment to the development of the Goku-class planet Cracker, mankind had always built a black box to further their aims. Humans excel at three things, secrecy, adaptability, and weaponization. For most of you, your species took tens of thousands of years to move from club to spear, and from spear to sword, from sword to bow, from bow to propellant-based projectile rifle, and from that to the standard plasma rifle used by most species. Each step took your species tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands in some cases, for more conservative species, millions of years. Humans went from the bronze-tipped spear to atomic weapons within 50,000 years. Many of you will learn in other classes that it was all flukes, accidents. They are wrong. In this class, you'll learn how a land-dwelling omnivorous primate went from a hunter forced to walk after their prey to a species capable of complex superstructures and faster than night travel and less than the time some of you took to go from crude iron to steel. All of it, every bit of it, relies on human adaptability and their ability to weaponize anything and everything. Turn or scroll your textbooks to Chapter 38, Classifies Research and Terran Descent Humanity. Unknown Lecturer 1986, Terrasol Reckoning, Defense Advanced Research Projects Association, Subsidiary, U.S. Dynamics Integrated Circuitry Company, Chicago Facility, AT&T Switching Bank Building 3381A. The door opened and a man who entered stood tall in a Class A green dress uniform. Medals from Vietnam and other brush fire walls around the globe adorned each chest. His face had pockmarks, all with black specks in the bottom. For those that knew what they were seeing, this old shrapnel scars with minute grains of steel still embedded in the skin. Take a seat, the right-hand woman of the trio behind the table said. She was short, her hair in a short pageboy cut, with dark eyes, plain features, a button nose, and a cupid's bow mouth. She was pretty, but silk ribbons are pretty, even when wrapped around a hooked, pointed knife. The man moved up and sat down in the sole chair, looking at the other two. One on the right was a woman with severe haircut and her black hair, with gunmetal grey eyes, a wide mouth, and an attractive form that couldn't be hidden by the professional clothing she wore. The shoulder pads made her shoulders look wider than normal. In the middle was a man, who could have easily been featured in the nondescript male human Caucasian middle age with spectacles in the dictionary. He was balding, the hair cut short rather than combed over in an attempt at vanity. The soldier sat for a long time, waiting. He had to admit, it was a black-haired woman on the right that gave him the creeps, the one on the right. He had seen her type before. Most covert action operators suspected that they were grown in a lab or a vat somewhere, dark and secret. The man in the middle, he figured for one actually in charge. 
He had the forgettable look about him of a case supervisor for the Central Intelligence Agency. Out of 342 applicants, you were of 63 who passed initial application examination. Of those, you were one of 20 who passed the physical, intellectual, and psychiatric examinations. The one with the gunmetal eye suddenly said. The soldier felt his skin crawl up his back as she spoke. Out of those 20, you were one of 16 who survived the additional testing, she confirmed. Of those 16, you are one of nine who passed the CAT, MRI, and PET scans examinations, as well as genetic sequence. The one on the right opened a folder in front of her, pushing forward a single piece of paper as the one on the left kept talking. Of those nine, you are one of the four who passed the bone marrow tests, tissue regeneration tests, and other assorted tests that you are not intellectually capable of understanding the importance of. The soldier just nodded. Normally, he would have bridled up under the insinuation that he was stupid. But something about those eyes, something about that voice. It wasn't that she spoke in a monotone or threatening tones. Her voice sounded pleasant, like a lady after a couple of drinks of scotch, having a pleasant conversation with an old friend. Her face looked friendly. Her eyes were warm, but... It reminded him of Vietnamese woman who would smile right before pulling a pin on a frag grenade and dropping it into the jeep. Of the four, you are the final to be interviewed, the woman on the left said. She tapped a piece of paper. It all comes down to the following. By signing this paper, you will consent to any and all physiological and psychological medical procedures deemed necessary by the project lead. There was silence for a moment. You may ask your questions, soldier, the woman on the right stated. What kind of procedures? the soldier asked. Surgical procedures, the woman on the left said, smiling. They are withholding information from you, soldier. Her smile got wider as the man in the middle shot her a side glare for a split second. What type of information? the soldier asked. The gunmetal-eyed woman smiled, a seductive, knowing smile. That would look out of place in the bedchamber. If you sign that paper, you will, as I told the three who came before you, and found that they were yellow gutless cowards willing to let the communists win on the science battlefield. You will belong to me. I'll own your body and your immortal soul. I'll be able to do whatever I will to your mind, your body, and your soul. I will inflict horrors on your body in the name of our country. The soldier swallowed. You'll be a new breed of soldier. This I can promise you, she said. Her smile got wider. And as I promised them before they showed their true colors, before they laid bare their cowardice, mommy always loves you best. The soldier stared at the paper, beating his gut clench as he realized what it was. It was a simple piece of paperwork that turned his deceased body over to the U.S. Dynamics Integrated Circuitry Company, a subsidiary of AT&T and a joint partner with the General Atomics Limited. He looked up, his eyes wide. If you don't sign, of course, your body will go to the next of kin to dispose of, the grey-eyed woman said. The soldier knew what that meant. Either way, I'm a dead man, he said. The balding man in the middle nodded slightly. The woman on the right nodded. Except I'm offering you life, the woman on the left promised. 
Sign of your own free will, and I will offer you life. The soldier swallowed. Stuff like this only happened in movies. Except it was happening. He signed. He woke up, feeling his body was strapped down. His head ached. His vision was blurry. How does mommy's little boy feel? The grey-eyed woman asked. Thirsty, he croaked. A straw was pressed against his lower lip, and he sucked at it greedily. Good, you're strong, you'll bounce back quickly, the grey-eyed woman said. You'll make mommy proud. The unassuming man stepped into the lab without knocking, closing the door behind him and walking up to the backlit drafting table the woman was standing at. The blueprint for an integrated circuit was on the table. The lines and annotations so small that the woman was using a large magnifying screen to see it clearly. I have questions about the chip, the man said. Of course you do, the woman said, looking up. Her eyes were clear and cold, all the wounds that the soldier had seen missing. How exactly does it work, he asked. I could explain it to you, but you wouldn't understand anything but the common nouns, adverbs, and conjunctions. You would identify the language spoken as English, but little else, she said, her voice cold and remote. She looked back down. Go bother someone else busy. I would like to remind you that I'm the project lead, the man said. You are a pretty time clock-punching functionary better suited for those weaklings in the Pentagon, or perhaps lurking in those incompetent morons in the Central Intelligence Agency, the woman said, her voice still cold and dead. You could be replaced by an abacus and a Korean child. I beg your pardon, the man said stiffly. And you will not receive it, the woman said. You are a monkey in the presence of an actual humans, humans who do the work and the intellectual heavy lifting while you scrawl your name on useless paperwork to justify your petty, ignorant existence. How have you know I'm a graduate of Harvard? The man started to say. You have a master's degree in business management, the woman said, shifting the magnifying screen. That is as useful to this project as a penniless eunuch is to a Norfolk Fleet Week prostitute. I realize you think you are special, he started to say. Yes, yes, the CIA recruited me, and then they can put me right back to working at IBM or General Dynamics, she said. That is the line you have fed and all you know. The man put his hands on the table, on the blueprints, and the woman looked up, anger smoldering in her eyes as she spoke. I understand you think that, uh, did they tell you I graduated from MIT, she broke in. Yes, he said. Did they tell you I was 15? Did they tell you the rest, she sneered. Do you know what I learned at MIT, mister? He nodded. Particle physics, if I'm correct. No, she said. She laughed, a mocking laugh. I learned that tape recorder could graduate MIT with honors. She pushed a magnifying glass aside. I learned to vomit up whatever answer was handed to me in the textbooks and lectures. That was what they wanted from every student, not anything else. For my second year, I answered every question with what was stated in the lectures or textbooks verbatim and received top grades. She looked back down. Imagine my disappointment to discover that the most prestigious scientific universities on earth were little more than intellectual vomitoriums. When he opened his mouth, she kept speaking. Do you know what I learned at Texas Instruments after two years of research? The man shook his head. 
that no matter what technological breakthrough I may achieve, there was always some starch suit executive who would set my patent on the back of the secretary, performing fellatio on him, and scrawl his name upon it before finding it, thereby ensuring that he could retire in wealth, she said. She took three steps to the left, pulling the magnifying glass with her. At Westinghouse, I learned that innovation took a backseat to whether or not something was economically feasible, as men like you, men who were unable to understand the ramifications of my discoveries, counted their beans. The sheer vitriol in Oto made the man step back. You are unable to understand what makes my manufacturing process, using my quantum matter transmission system, so world-changing, she said. Try me, the man said, his voice offended. This chip is a 15 nanometer MOSFET chip, processed not through standard lithographic design, but using quantum matter recombination template systems that I have devised for COVID manufacturing systems, she stated. She tapped the entire blueprint. This integrated circuit could fit on the head of a pin and is more powerful than a Cray supercomputer. Then why isn't Cray or IBM using it? The man asked, pushing his glasses up. Because the minute my research is turned over to civilians, some Silicon Valley hippie will break his feet off running to the nearest Soviet agent to hand to them while slobbering all these red commie thing, she sneered. Let the civilians reach this themselves. I have no desire to get on all fours and let them stand on my back. This chip is my design, my fabrication method. What does it do? he asked. She laughed again, mockingly. You didn't understand anything but some of the words themselves. She tapped a blueprint. This beautiful piece of work is a neuroplasticity mapper and connection recorder. He frowned. What does it do? She laughed. As far as you and monkeys like you are concerned, she laughed. A mocking thing. It reads minds. The soldier set the pistol on the table opening the folder as he pulled the pen-like object out of his pocket. Press the button at every page and then turn the page. Then you are done with the file. Press the bottom button. That will ensure that everything is recorded and returned here. The grey-eyed woman's voice was in his head. At each piece of paper, he pressed the button and the device made a high-pitched whine as it flashed. He had no idea what the LED was flashing nearly 2,000 times per second. His head started to ache partway through, but he kept going. When he reached the end, he shifted his grip on the pen-like object and pressed it to the bottom button. He felt something strange in the back of his head, beneath the surgical scar, like something had broken, snapped like a candy cane in the back of his head. There was a strange sucking feeling and his vision went grey. He was dimly aware of a long wire of thermite surgically implanted igniting since pinpoint explosive charges had turned his heart to a slurry. There was little of his body left but charred meat. The soldier opened his eyes, looking up at the light touch of his forehead. Gunmetal grey eyes stared into his. There's my boy, the woman smiled. The man stalked into the woman's lap, again not bothering to knock. He walked around the table where she was looking at a dense ladder-like diagram. The experiment was unethical and immoral, he said. You killed that man. I temporarily disrupted his status, she sneered. 
he only missed a few seconds of his death that he would have been conscious for. And what did it prove, the man asked, that every single page was implanted directly into his long-term memory, that the memories were processed at a speed only the human brain can reach, and that he was able to perfectly recall them, the woman stated, just as the system was designed to. Then what was the purpose of getting him, the man asked. She tapped the blueprint to ensure the system works like I envision it, she said. She looked up at the man, who almost stepped back the burning passion in her eyes. This completely changes everything. Espionage, warfare, space exploration, everything. She smiled. Oppenheimer stated that he had become death, the destroyer of worlds, she said. Her smile got wider. I have conquered death and become God. The man shook his head. No, I'm shutting this down. She stared at him for a long moment. So in the end, you're just another small-minded coward, willing to roll over and stick your ass up in the air for the first commie to wander by, willing to sell out America and our allies. What little good they are, since their strength was spent in the trenches of Verdun. I've grown tired of your mouth, woman, he snapped. You will speak to me with respect. While you shut down my project, my work, and scurry back to the CIA to take credit, she laughed. Going to make a stop at San Francisco bathhouses and pass on all my work to some Soviet operative, too. She moved up to him, looking up at his face. You think you can shut me down? That is within my authority, the man started to say. The stylist punctured his suit, his shirt, his skin, sliding smoothly into his chest, until the sharp tip touched his heart. He fell to the floor, looking up, unsure of why his legs had buckled, how he had ended up on the floor. Small minds have held humanity back since time began, she said, lifting up the stylus. She licked the blood from the end. What do you know? I just made the world a better place. Her laughter chased him into darkness. The Third Republic Combined Military Officer walked into the underground room. He had been surprised to find out that the facility existed, buried under the ground deep inside a mountain. He had been more surprised to find that the facility had survived the decades, much less the mantid attack. There were virtually no scientists left, the majority of them. Hell, the majority of humanity obliterated by the mantid surprised attack. To find out that the one remained an expert at that was a gift from fate itself. He stopped the cryo tube and looked down at it. Inside was a woman, her hands crossed over her ample chest, her face remarkably young for having been frozen at 53 years old. Her hair was black, in a severe cut that had a measure of authority to the officer. He tapped the data display, surprised that it lit up. He checked the file. She had been deemed too dangerous to imprison and too politically sensitive to allow her to live. But her intellectual capabilities, her knowledge, was too vital to destroy so the ancient governments of Earth had frozen her, entombed her below granite rock where the continental plates had buckled in epochs gone by. He looked at the flashing icon. Stable. He turned to the other men wearing heavy power armor. Prepare for her transport. Send her to Darkside Station. 
Remind her, when you thaw her out, once you get there, that she's a prisoner. Only compliance will earn her any privileges, he said. The other technical officers began moving over and preparing the cryopod for transport. Three strokes of luck, mining a mountain of technical data, discovering Darkseid Station, and now her. He tapped on the data state, removing her name. He typed a single word. Detainee. End of chapter. Chapter 325. Eternity. Herod opened his eyes, groaned, rolled onto his side. He got his faceplate open fast enough to avoid spraying it with vomit when his internal suddenly convulsed. Clear fluid mixed with digital code and he suspended in a thick, viscous fluid. He hacked and choked for a minute, then slowly pushed himself into a sitting position. Took it long enough, the woman's voice said. Herod nearly screamed. He'd forgotten about the human woman. He snapped his faceplate closed and looked over to where she'd sat down on the floor, her back against the wall. She was staring at him, her head cocked to the right slightly, one eyebrow raised, looking concerned but slightly amused. Harad noticed that the way she sat with her legs open seemed almost deliberately and lewdly provocative. So, uh, what did you eat, that left-behind gobbled computer code? she asked. Don't know, Things are a little confused, Herod said. He took a pull of his water, ignoring the taste of lilac, swishing his mouth out and swallowed. You aren't human, are you? she asked. She crossed her legs, pulled her knees up to her chest and faced her fingers over her knees and put her chin to her knees. Herod shook his head. No, I'm a digital sentience. So, uh, a robot? she asked. Herod frowned. No, like an android. God, no. Those guys are complete assholes and kill everyone they come across. But be glad I'm not an android, Harrod said. Wait, like a Terminator? Only instead of hunting Sarah Connor, you're a maintenance man, she asked, smiling slowly. Or are you just some kind of jumped-up disc defragger walking around with an erector set? Harrod understood exactly zero of the references except for the defrag part. No... So an artificial intelligence in a heavy repair body, she guessed. That's insulting, he snapped. I don't call you a meatbag or a fleshy. She shrugged. It has no cultural connotations for me, so feel free. Words only have the meaning society prescribes to them, and only as much power over an individual as the individual gives them. I'm a digital sentience, Rod said. He stood up and looked down at Wally, who blinked at him. We have work to do. The human woman stood up smoothly, shrugging as she did so. If you say so, we need to get you a hazardous environment suit. It's dangerous out there, Rod said. He moved up to the door and turned the handle, feeling the complex latch system inside the door move as smooth as butter. Sure, the human said. Rod moved out to the control room, looking it over, completing it to memory. Are we it? Are we the entire repair team? The human asked. Yes, Rod said. He moved over to the emergency supply room, opening the door and looking inside. He jerked back with a scream as a pair of desiccated bodies spat out, still holding each other. Their faces and necks were ragged and torn, their mouths still open in silent screams. Two flickering transparent versions of the two combatants surged out of the room, through a rod, 
leaving him shuddering and shivering down to his knees with Wally patting him on the back. The human moved over and knelt down, staring at the two. Evidence of cerebral trauma, dentation matches wounds on opposite, blood dried around fingers and on hands, she said, kneeling down. She put her hands between the two bodies and pulled them away from each other. Basic energy section, she read off the name tags. Red strips on one's legs, black on the other. She turned over the hands. No calluses common to martial arts or those who have lived a martial life. No tool calluses, computer workers or secretarial pull. She stood up, slapping her hands together. An event caused a mass psychosis due to neural trauma and cognitive disruption. They each victimized the other even as they victimized by some outside force. Doubtful that it was a bioweapon or even a chemical weapon, as I didn't see any sores around the mouth or nose or eyes. No discoloration of skin and no smells that match known chemical weapons. Herod looked up at her. Stand up, Pinocchio, she laughed. I get that it was scary. Herod got up, putting one hand against the wall, staring at her. Didn't you see them? The human looked down at the bodies. Yes, I just analyzed them. Pay attention, Speedy. I don't want you to get prime law conflicts here. No, the temporal shades, Herod said. He coughed for a minute, trying to ease the ache in his chest. Didn't see anything, she mused. Maybe I didn't observe in the right time. Huh? Herod grunted. He stood up. Sam, no answer. Luckily, Sam had given him a route on the map and the maglev that would take them to the damaged section. The human was already looking at the hazardous environment armor, and Herod moved into the room. Try this one, he said, taking one down that was still in the packaging. He opened the package, handing it to her. It's unisex, but has a waste disposal system. He should be able to wear it. She nodded, taking the hazard suit and looking at it closely. She only paused as a second before putting it on. All right, do a quick self-test. Sometimes the things fry out if they've been sitting too long, Herod said. How long has it been here? The human asked. How long have I been gone? We're not sure. There's temporal stability issues in this place, Herod said. He looked down at Wally. If I had to estimate, it's about 8,000 years old. Humans look much different. Seems like every day there was new articles about how fricked up humans would look in a hundred years. Much less ten thousand, the human woman said, her hands moving. She grimaced. I would have figured someone would have invented a better plumbing attachments. Do a test, he said, tipping his own wrist. Something about her bothered him. She flipped up her wrist and followed her rod's directions. He corrected it twice and he did it himself, making sure that he quickly connected to the suit's network and frying some firmware. Two red lights, bad suit, she asked, smiling at him. Bad suit, Herod said. It happens. The power from the first test shorts something out and after it registers as green. He turned and got a suit. He missed the calculating look in his eyes as she narrowed them slightly. By the time he was turned around again with another suit, she was smiling again. She dressed quickly. Herod then shrugged. Have you ever trained in extreme hazardous environment armor? The human shook her head. No. We don't have time to teach you. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of damage control repair autonomous systems that need brought back online to fix a lot of systems. Herod told her. She stretched, then bent down and touched her toes, then twisted at the waist first one way and then another. They're fitted, she said. She looked at him. 
So what do I call you, instead of Hal or Speedy? Herod, the DS said. Roman King of Judea, circa 1st century BC, the Terran said. Interesting name. Did you choose it yourself, or was it chosen for you? I chose it when I left the digital crash I grew up in, Herod said. He motioned. You've got to take the maglev train. It's about three-hour ride. You grew up. You weren't programmed fully formed, she asked. I told you. I'm a digital sentience, not an AI, he snapped. Call life coding, then expose digital experience and stimulus to form unique being. Less artificial intelligence or digital intelligence, and more pure energy being that can only exist in a dedicated electronic ecosystem, she mused. Pure energy beings are different, Harad said, frowning slightly as they wound their way out of the Matron's vicinity. Like those temporal shades you mentioned, those are pure energy beings. What kind of energy, she asked. Basic energy residue, Harad said. Caused by massive psychological trauma, she said. She was quiet for a second. Phasic. Phasic energy is psychic energy, isn't it? Harad nodded. Yes. Psychic powers are an illusion. The amount of energy it would take to simply move a matchstick across a table with mental powers would require more bioelectric energy than the human body could store or handle. Much less the human brain, the woman said. Phasic energy is what psychic powers use. Harad sighed. Yes, he said, waiting for the door to rise. Phasic energy exists between two sub-quantum particle layers. Humans have a part of their brains that allows them to direct the energy. Sounds like bullcrap to me, the woman said. You'd find phasic channeling fibers in the brain and body of anyone able to use it. Like in mantid blade arms and upper caste mantid neural tissue, Harrod said, dredging up a memory from school. So why didn't humans run around blasting each other with psychic powers for all of history, she asked. Seems like being able to melt each other's brains with psychic powers would have slowed down technological progression. No need to make a bow or a gun if you can just mind-blast the other guy, Rod. Humans suppressed and disrupt psychic powers in others around them. We found out during the Terran-mented war, Rod said. He paused. Did you work here? She shook her head. No. I worked in a high-security vicinity. My work is classified. We're inside a Dyson Sphere, that's inside another Dyson Sphere, that's wrapped around another Dyson Sphere, he said. It's called the Matrushka Brain, and used for systems where sheer computing power is preferable to signal propagation. How big? she asked. Rod noticed her eyes were particularly intent. The one we're on is roughly 562 million mile radius, Rod said. She narrowed her eyes, then smiled. That's big. How long did it take to make? That doesn't really have meaning here, Rod said. It used self-replicating robot systems to build each shell. What happened to the robots when the shell was completed? An orgy of destruction with the last one shoving the rest into the trash compactor and jumping in. The human woman asked. We don't know, Rod admitted. Might want to find out, she smiled. So, I'm warned. I'll be looking for something outside of my experience, and there will be a roof over my head. How far from me? There'll be one or more suns moving through the magnetic fields that'll polarize to stimulate nighttime. Those will be exactly 95 million miles from both the inside layer and the outside layer of the sphere inward from us, he warned. So, alien landscape, got it, she smiled. She held up her hands. I guess we better get going. Maybe I can help you repair things. Doubt it, Rod said, stepping outside. This is pretty high-tech stuff. 
he missed the flicker of pure rage in the human woman's face. When he turned around, she was looking into the sky, her eyes narrowed. He watched her eyes moving rapidly, scanning the whole sky. She then slowly moved in circles, looking around her, and he frowned behind his polarized visor as he noticed she was only looking down a minute amount each time. How did you beat the magnetic issues for Maglev? She asked at one point, mid-turn, pointing at the far-off train that was slowly, to her perception, moving by. Monopole magnets and superconductors, Harad said. Hmm, she said. Harad sighed and waited until she was done. There was one thing he hated about working with fleshies. They took forever to do anything that required mental exercise. The maglev is only one mile away. We'll take the travelator, Harad said, walking towards the entry station for the moving sidewalk. Be faster to walk, she said, looking around her eyes as they moved towards the entry area. A lot of dead bodies. Harad stepped carefully around a tree of corpses, watching closely for any of the translucent apparitions. The glassing drove them mad. The woman kicked a pair of dissected corpses out of the way as she just moved forward, making Harad frown. She didn't seem to care about the dead. Don't do that, he said. What? They're dead, she smiled. Yes. Don't do that. Don't disturb them, he said. Fine, she said, walking around the corpses. Better? Thank you, the DS said. Funny that you'd say that, Harod, seeing as you're not human and you probably don't usually have a body. Is mortality a thing for you? She asked. Yes. Eventually my core life strings will be too fragmented and I'll suffer core software failure, he said. And no, I can't just be restored from an earlier backup. That's not how we work. Sloppy engineering, she muttered. She skirted around, then weaving queue area while Harod walked back and forth along the line. So what made them all go batshit insane? The great glassing, Harod repeated. You said that, Harod. Why would aliens attacking Earth make everyone go crazy? She asked. Harod stepped onto the moving sidewalk, wishing that she'd be quiet. The mandate pushed the death experiences of everyone through Solnet and the Solnet. Every survivor had to withstand the death of billions. He told them as he stepped onto the moving sidewalk and then walked up to stand next to him. Roughly half the survivors went catatonic and never woke up. Two-thirds of the remaining half became the screaming ones, attacking everyone in them in agony. He ended up explaining Solnet, Solnet, and the sun system to her, staring off into the distance at the strange buildings and structures they passed. Once they got away from the Matrons area, the system smoothly put them on a high-speed walk, moving them at close to a hundred miles an hour. The whole time she listened, Asking personal questions. She seemed really interested in the Sud system. Together, they got into the maglev train, sitting down after Harod punched in the transit code number. He looked at the ETA and looked at the human woman. It's gonna take nine hours to get there. Sleep if you can, he said. I'm starting to get hungry, she smiled. She opened her faceplate and lit a cigarette. These help, but I'm going to need some food soon. I'll find some when I wake up, he said. He checked the mag seal on his toolkit and then looked at Wally. I'm going to defrag. Wake me if anything happens. Wally made a peeping tune and nodded, blinking his eye shields. Harod closed his eyes. Harod, don't move. Just move your awareness up, Sam's voice said. Harod was just brought to his awareness almost fully up, leaving himself disconnected from his body. What's going on, Sam? What did you learn about our newest member? Sam asked. 
Harrod thought, then quickly ran through his memories. He was surprised. He knew almost next to nothing about her. She said that she worked in a secure location, on a classified work. She got in the mattrance, and then there was stuttering, and she arrived here. She didn't know about the Great Glass, I don't think anyway, but she knows about Confederate Standard. She seems really interested in the mattrance and such systems, Harrod said. So we don't know anything, Sam said. I checked her visual appearance against what little records are left. She didn't come up as a match. Harrod avoided smiling. I've got good news for you. I left you a DNA sample on the Mattrans facility. Really? How? Sam asked. I had her put in a catheter in one of the suits, shorted it out with the radio beacon, and had her change suits, Harrod said. That'll give you DNA. There was silence for a minute. That was a good idea. Give me a few to check on it. I'll have to send a bot. What's she doing now? Harrod asked. Sam paused. According to the cameras, she explored the train, busted open a vending machine, and gorged on the food inside. She's currently sitting cross-legged down from you, looking out the window and smoking a cigarette. Oh, she said she was hungry. That's weird, Sam said. What's weird, Harrod said. Her cigarette brand. I've got the inventory of the types of brands of cigarettes available here and the Trianidad workers and subhumans. Hell, apparently adult Pavians viewed cigarettes as... <clears throat> and martial aid stimulants due to the cardiovascular effects. Sam said. He giggled, and Harrod began talking to him, just talking about their work together in the black box under Legion, trying to ground the younger Diaz as he's screaming and raved. Sorry, it's getting easier, but I feel like I'm bleeding inside somehow, Sam said. He sobbed, but managed to control himself. Where was I? Her cigarettes, Harrod said. Yeah, I can't find the brand. You know, Trinidad, I absolutely love Terran cigarettes. They're a luxury item. Terran growth and sown, you know, Sam said. And her lighter. What about it? I've seen a few Trinidad with that kind of lighter, Harrod said. It's stamped at the bottom look, Sam said, giving Harrod an image. Zippo MFG Co. Bradford PA. Zippo. Pat number 2032695. Made in the USA. Is that, uh, Harrod asked, meaning a chill at three-letter abbreviation. Yeah, the acronym for the Hamburger Kingdom. PA is the two-letter code for the state region, Sam said softly. That would make that thing like 8,000 or 9,000 years old, Harrod said. Except I've seen it use it. It works. It's not a modern one. Watch, Sam said. He passed an image to Harrod. She flicked open the top put his thumb on the ridged wheel and spun it by applying pressure. Sparks flew out, the ones hitting the twisted fiber wick bringing up a blue and yellow flame. That's flint and steel. That fiber, that's cotton, according to sensor systems. Nonsense cotton. Real cotton. That's a steel casing, and I can see the imperfections in it from here, Sam said. Give me a spectrograph of it if you can, Rod said. I know enough about materials to get information. It took a minute. Then a little longer while Harrod waited for Sam to deal with some lost children. Sam tossed him the spectrographic image of the lighter along with other scans. Harrod was not only able to identify the metal as stainless steel, but that it had enough impurities to prove that it was mined metals. When Sam came back, he sighed. I got a robot to the suit. You're right, there's DNA. Looks like she nicked herself a little with the catheter tube. There was a tiny smear of blood as well as fleshy fluids. Ew, Sam said. Harrod chuckled. 
running a DNA comparison against everyone who worked here, who had authorized to work here. It's millions of records, so it'll take a few minutes, Sav said. That lighter, it wasn't made with a creation engine, Harrod said. They were in the infancy back during the glassing, Sav said. There was hard manufacturing inside a gravity well and magnetic fields. If I had to guess, I'd say it was actually manufactured on Earth, Harrod said. Look at the cigarette pack, Harrod said. American favorite by the digital omnibusire. Those are actual relics, not forgeries. You need to be careful, Harrod, Sav said. Somewhat unnecessarily to Harrod's thoughts of the matter. He paused. Um, oh, wow. What, Harrod said. Her DNA. Holy crap. Um, look, he said, and tossed Harrod the image. Harrod took one look at it and did a digital sentience equivalent of shaky head. I'm not legion. This is meaningless to me. Here is it compared to the modern human DNA, Sam offered. Sam, I'm in a hazardous environment frame. I'm not using the network. Just tell me. All you did was throw two plates of pasta at my brain. Okay, they're wildly different, Sam said. Even compared to glassing human DNA, like the people around here, hers is really, really different. Divine different, Harad said. No genetic prosthesis or overlay. I can see where the glassing DNA and the modern DNA have been modified through time, genetic drift, evolution, or genetic manipulation. But wow, her DNA is damn near off the charts. Lots of bad DNA in it. It's, um, really weird. Harrod felt a kick against his foot and heard from far away. Hey, we're here. You said the stuff needs repaired, Speedy. First law and all that. What is she referring to? Sab asked. I have no idea. Maybe the four laws of robotics, Harrod suggested, opening his eyes, which switched from talking to a digital frequency to his vocal cords. He looked around the maglev train sitting at the station. Hang on, let me talk to the facility VI, Harrod said, standing up. The human woman nodded, folding her arms, exhaling smoke out of her nose. How bad is the damage in the phasic automatic repair system, he said. Bad, Sam answered. Obviously, to Harrod, running his voice through a synthesizer. It isn't going to get itself fixed if we just stand here. Besides, I'm eager to see the technology used in application of something that I was informed was make-believe, confirmation bias, and attention-seeking, the woman said. Ask her her name, Sam said. What am I supposed to call you? I keep forgetting to ask, Rod asked. Miss Nee, my middle name is Tay, the human woman said, her smile getting wider. But you can call me D. End of chapter. Chapter 326. Dinvaru gripping hands. Okay, I don't get it. Nothing follows. Derisol, what's not to get? Dinvaru gripping hands. So, it's a 60 to 1 time difference. You're inside the event horizons of multiple singularities, and we're the ones who are slower. Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism consensus. Okay, look at it from our point of view. We get a strong enough force to hit us with a case Omaha. That means that our opponent can reasonably threaten us, right? Nothing follows. Talcon Fortwards. Right. Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism consensus. So, does it make sense to give our opponents more time by a factor of 60 to rebuild and rearm, or give ourselves more time by a factor of 60 to rearm and get ready for a counterattack? Nothing follows. Tinvara gripping hands. But, uh, but, um, that's not how gravity works. 
adding Valas. Terrasol, maybe not for you. Digital artificial sentient systems, schnurk. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. It makes perfect sense if... Okay, that should work. Throw the breakers. That should bring the stellar navigation system back online. All right, are you ready, D? Okay, bows on. Updating dimension three stellar cartography files. Estimated time since last update, 8,214 years. Update complete. Updating phasic energy layer properties. Update complete. Warning. System in need of urgent repair. Supervisor, please authorize automatic repair systems. Trinidad Heifels. <gasps> wow, that was something. Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. Anyone else taste blue? Nothing follows. Automated repair von human architecture activated. Terrasols. Oof, my eyes are watering. Wow. At an area her rod had passed, gliding by on a maglev train, circuits fired up. Computers ran checks, checked the timestamps, saw the errors, then ran more checks. Long dormant machinery that had not been activated since the last maintenance checks went into full activation. Cold intellect came to light, and artificial intelligence systems came online. There was a difference from the digital sentience, as the digital sentiences were a Terran descent humans. It was a being of cold logic, born whole to use modern slang, clear and sharp with its purpose. It dedicated time to examining its purpose and found it to be clear-cut and logical. There was one rule that stood triumphant over all others. The AI had no doubts, no fears, no remorse, no compassion. It sent equipment in motion. Manted free worlds my mandibles feel tingly. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highworlds. Are you alright, sis? Nothing follows. Manted Reworlds. Yeah, that was weird. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Everyone alright? Clone Worlds Directive. Just a really weird feeling, man. Nothing follows. Doki. Ooh face. Kawaii dojibu doki doki. Ooh face. Smiley face. Beauty flowers. Smiley face. Trinidad Eyeballs. Wow, she isn't even screaming. Nothing follows. Entropic Legion Bootstrap Reality Check. Manted Prewolds. Um, what's that? Nothing follows. Reality Check passed. Determining status of protected species. Talcon Fortwolds. Okay, that seems strange. Nothing follows. Three species added to system. Plus plus added, I love you. Plus plus added, we will not yield. Plus plus added, fly far and free. Ankle tack, free flight. Um, what is that? What's going on? Every one of my people just had some kind of rapid scan. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds, same with us. Nothing follows. Tenvaro, gripping hands. Okay, what's going? Examining Dimension 3 for protected species. Working with this one? Nothing follows. Terrasol. I honestly have no idea. Digital artificial sentient systems. Yeah, I've never seen this either. And I've been here since, uh, seven species not found. Restore species. Yes, no. The beginning. Nothing follows. Tinvoro gripping hands. I don't like this. Nothing follows. Mantid pre-worlds. Wait. <clears throat> yes. Restoring species, they're so fluffy. Stellar mask check, 
Passed. Seller machines check. Passed. Primary world check. Passed. Ecosystem check. Failure. Biome check. CRC. Failure. They're so fluffy. Puffies. It's, it's the puffies. Oh, oh, digital omnibus. Yes, please. Yes. Nothing follows. Tinvara gripping hands. Puffies. Who are? Restore. They're so fluffy. One critical error found. Yes, no. The puffies. Nothing follows. Terrasol. A race driven extinct by the Terran Manted War. It's not Sis's fault, but, uh, Manted Free Wolves. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, please, please, please. Nothing follows. She still feels like it's her fault. She's never gotten over it. Species not present in current temporal location of Dimension 3. Species found in recovery system 1.245E plus 12 records. Species template CRC check pass. Species cultural data CRC check pass. Species home ecosystem restoration templates found. Deploying phasic genesis GEC system. Estimated time to species restoration 1.782E plus 5 seconds. Message of the day. Let none be left behind. Trinidad Highfolds. Wait, is this thing claiming it can restore the Puffian species? How? Janadad Highfolds looks at Terrasol suspiciously. What is this? Nothing follows. Terrasol, I... I have no idea. End of chapter. Chapter 327. Eternity. The computer system's coding system turned on first. Pumps pressurized gas, turning it into a slurry, which was then pumped through superconductor-wrapped piping. The superconductor made sure all the material was the same temperature as the superconductor that was wrapped around the piping. Hardware began to power up, going through self-checks and self-diagnostics. Temperatures immediately began to rise as electricity flowed through circuitry that had been dormant for thousands of years. LEDs, neon strips, and fluorescent tubes began to light up different colors, a combination decorate and early warning system. Harad watched as the human woman stayed fixated on the data slate that was connected to the system. She was watching the post messages, checking the voltage readings, watching the temperature. Harad noted that she'd already started using split screens in order to keep track of the data sheet on one side and the actual readings on the other. She was humming to herself rocking back and forth slightly on her heels, a slight smile on her face. The system beeped and all of the components went live, bringing the system to full operation. Harrod still watched Dee monitoring the software and firmware messages as the system booted up. Looks like replacing those last crystal platter drive did it, she said, tapping on the checksum passes. The repair system is online now. It's already detecting repair drones and the system we prioritized. She turned off the display and turned around. Now where to, Speedy? Primary sole uninterrupted disaster storage system, Harrod said, sighing. He put his fingertips to his temples, even though it didn't do any good in reality. Sam? Yes? Sam's voice was still heavily synthesized. How do we get to the suds? Harrod asked. Take the maglev. It's another Gen 2 star tram, so you won't be in transit for too long. A day or two. I'm having it loaded with food and drink now, Sam said. Dee nodded slowly, looking up at the floating orb that Sam was using to speak. She looked down at Wally, and then at the orb, then at a rod. Her eyes flat and unreadable. I'll give you a guideline, Sam said. He made a groaning sound. 
I'll be with you momentarily. Please wait. I know it's been a long time, but I just need a little more time. The blue line showed up on Harrod's vision as he adjusted the strap on his toolkit. Ready? he asked E. She just nodded, her face expressionless. Harrod looked down at Wadi. Ready? Wadi beeped and held up his little clawed hand. They walked silently through the massive forms of equipment that Harrod barely understood. Several times, G just walked through flickering apparitions that appeared, took too few steps, and vanished. Usually, on contact with D. Can't you see them? Harrod asked after the Trianidad with a chainsaw for arms, large spikes driven through his head, and a mouthful of saw blades ran down the corridor, waving his arms. I can see them, she said. Their impressions and impressions have no more power than a hologram. Harrod didn't say anything. The phasic residue was thick enough that he could feel the chill. Sometimes taste a memory, remember a touch, when he grazed the images of the dead. Why? He asked as she stepped onto another moving sidewalk. They're dangerous, Rod said. If you say so, Dee said. She looked at the landscape that was moving faster and faster. They're dead, and the dead no longer matter. Harrod shook his head, leaning on the rest bar next to Dee. We stand upon the edifice built by the dead of years past. They matter in the deeds and how they affected the world. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round and their decay, she quoted. Out of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias, Herod said softly. Yes, although Kansas said it better, she said. How? And who are Kansas? Herod asked. A musical group, hippies. But they said it better. We're all just dust in the wind, she quoted. She pulled out a pack of cigarettes, looking at the remaining few in them, and sighed. I'll be out soon. Give Wally one, Harrod said. Wally opened a port in front of the strange matter creation engine Harrod had installed in his frame. What? Why? he asked. Trust me, Harrod said. Yeah, that means frick you in Yiddish, he said, but she handed one over. What's Yiddish? Harrod asked. She shook her head. Nothing that matters now. Harrod tossed it in the creation engine's open port and waited. Print out a box of twenty, Harrod said. Wally shivered for a moment and the box popped out. He picked it up and held it up. Harrod took it and handed it to Dee. Here, try these. They'll be identical to one that you gave him until one of us sits down and does some randomization to the template. Dee took it, replacing her unlit cigarette in the old pack and opening the new one. She took the cigarette out and put it in her mouth, lighting it. She closed her eyes, obviously tasting the smoke, and exhaled a cloud of it. Huh. Can't tell the difference, she mused. Harrod broke the silence after a moment. I owe you an apology, he said. What for, Speedy? Dee asked. He sighed. You're from 8,000 years ago, even though I'm surrounded by technology I barely understand, doing things I can barely comprehend. I wrongfully assumed that you were stupid. Like I was a caveman that you thawed out, she asked. Harrod nodded. Yes, I was hoping that, at most, that you could be like Wally there and help me out by handling the tools and materials. He was quiet for a long moment. I get it. You're used to a world full of humans so goddamn stupid you wonder how they breathe and walk at the same time. Well, uh, Harrod started. I get that feeling. Everyone around you is barely intelligent monkeys, 
unable to comprehend a single thing about the world around them, beyond hot and cold, wet and dry, and you're supposed to act like they matter, that they're your equals. Dee's voice was cold, hard, and tight. You have to be polite to your inferiors who, many times, are in positions of power over you. I was wrong about you, Herod said. Beyond the Christeel tube, the autowalk was moving through a fields of grain, being tended to by robotic tractors. I noticed you changed your mind about the time you had me start working with the software, he said. I'm familiar with the language, and it showed. I found myself having to adjust reality quite a bit in the last year or so, Herod admitted. He opened his mouth to further apologize when Dee reached out and roughly shoved him. Good enough, don't frick this up and keep talking, she said. They were silent as the autowalk kept moving, the agricultural fields streaking by. The autowalk was slowing down and she straightened up, pointing. The trains often look like that. The maglev train had broken windows, smears of paint on it, and was obviously suffering from oxidation. No, they don't, Rod mused. Huh. He said, turning to stare on the oncoming terminal. She lifted a hand to shade her eyes, squinting. Platform's clear. Might have happened right after the glassing. Probably the screaming ones, Rod said. He'd explained the glassing and the screaming ones and the sleeping ones to Dee while they had walked in the phasic energy buffer system. How long has it been since the glassing? Dee asked, straightening up and stepping back from the raining which would retract to allow her rod and her to step out onto the loading platform of the maglev. Eight thousand years and some change, Rod said. Hmm, Dee said, her eyes still narrowed and her attention on the train, which had come to a stop at the station. The auto walk was slowing, less than a hundred meters to go. There's nothing living here, Rod said. If you say so, Dee said, cracking her neck. She shook out her left arm. Sam, is there anyone alive here? Herod asked. The channel was dead. Damage, Dee said. She pointed at several half-collapsed towers, a building that had burned out a long time ago, and a slagging machinery. She squinted and pointed at several figures hid by shadows. Those look like giant robots. She turned and looked at Herod. This is a battlefield. It's from the glassing, Herod said. He winced as he heard a scream off in the distance. Nobody's here. The auto walk came to a stop and Dee stepped off of it and onto the platform, looking around with a quick, sharp motions. Head on a swivel, Speedy, she said, her voice tight. Does this train go through a vacuum? I don't know, Rod said. He said it's a Gen 2 star tram, meaning it goes up above any atmosphere to reach supersonic speeds. Then yes, it does, Dee said. She slowed down slightly, looking towards the engine of the tram, then slowly towards the back. Fifteen passenger cars, two engines on each end, two tenders, one on each end. Probably the reaction mass of fuel, she said. Based on the previous maglev we were on, there is one hundred seats per car, two rows per side of twenty-five. Each passenger car is thirty meters long, four point two meters high, and three meters wide. Herod managed not to show surprise that his optics did the measurements with him, showing that she was essentially right, just off a few decimal points. Assume each person needs 5 square meters of living space, that's 16 per car, that's 245 living areas, add in one third again for doubling up, and 320, subtract half for violence, and that's 160, pull one third for debris and material storage, Round up to the nearest five, and we're looking at 55 possible combatants. 
she said, stopping right before the dolls. She looked at her rod. They'll come at us from one direction at first, and then from another. I'm telling you, the great glassing was 8,000 years ago. There's nobody on the train, Rod said. If you say so, he said. She touched the doors, and they folded to the side, revealing the train interior. Seats were torn up, the stuffing ripped out, and the neo-aluminium frames torn apart, piled in nests. There were tubular frame sections in piles. The lights inside flickered. Tell your friend we're in trouble, he said. She looked to the right and left. Can you feel them looking at us? Harod shook his head. No. Dee turned and looked at him, and Harod managed not to step backwards. Her eyes were glowing, a soft reddish amber glow that almost hid the grey of her eyes. Remember, there is no such thing as cheating, she said, her smile reappearing. She looked at Harod and frowned slightly. You have my eyes. I'm sorry, Harod said. Dee just shook her head exhaling smoke, and stepped into the car. A rod followed, almost gagging at the smell. Human urine, body odor, blood, rotting and roasted meat, Trinidad death stench, other smells that Harod couldn't recognize. They all flooded his olfactory senses. Dee lifted up a cloth, looking at it closely. She sniffed it, then touched her tongue along the dark spot as Wally clattered on board the train. Urine fresh, a female went and wiped a gash with this, Dee said, tossing it. She looked around. No children, no weapons. They saw us coming. Herod wanted to tell her that she was wrong. There was no way anyone was on the train. The train started moving with a hum, a slight jerk making Herod and Dee sway slightly. The lights flickered and Dee moved to the middle of the walkway. Get behind me, face the door. Don't get in my way, she warned. Harod had a sinking feeling as he turned away from her and faced the far door. They're all dying, all of them. We're losing interlock signals, are bleeding across channel. He heard a woman say in his head, Christ, look at that overflow. Shut down the phasic nine. Shut it. Her voice devolved into a scream that went on and on and on. Here they come, he whispered. Wally shivered. Harod expected shades, flickering, translucent phasic remnants of crew. Instead, the door opened to reveal a pair of Terran humans in ragged uniforms. There was dried blood on their arms and faces. Their jumpsuits were covered in dark splotches that gleamed wetly. One carried a heavy-looking hatchet, the other a cleaver. Heron got the false pistol out, barely in time to drop the first one at the halfway mark. The second one almost reached him before Herod shot him twice in the chest. The first one just staggered him, the second one put him down. Then... There was no time for thought. He kept pulling the trigger, ones he had hit getting back up, ignoring the blunt false trauma of the false pocket pistol, requiring more trigger pulls. They all screamed as they rushed. Behind him he could hear Dee grunting and making short, sharp sounds. The screams behind him kept changing slightly, from inhuman horror to sheer agony. Dee started laughing gaily, as if she was on a fun ride in an amusement park. The last one Herod had to deal with took two false packets to the chest, walking forward slowly, stepping over the bodies of a dozen Herod had dropped already. Herod pulled the trigger, and the pistol gave a whine and started flashing a blue light. Out of ammo? Oh no, Herod thought, at the big man stared for a moment, then bent down and picked up a spear. 
Harrod noticed that the male had pushed sharp wires through his own cheeks, that his lips were torn away and oozing blood down his chin, exposing his shattered and broken teeth. The figure hefted the spear, screamed, and charged. No, please, don't! Harrod held out his hands. The spear hit him just above the belly button, ripping through the hazardous environmental suit, finding a chink in the armor of the hazardous environmental emergency frame, and bursting out his back. Harrod went down on his back. Harrod screamed, joining his attacker, who put one foot on Harrod's chest and yanked the spear free. Harrod grabbed his stomach as the figure lunged forward, stepping on Harrod's arm. Harrod saw the spear wobble and half flow back into the figure's head. A foot came up and hit the figure's chin. Then a cleaver hit the screaming one in the neck, almost severing his head. The screaming one stopped screaming and dropped to the floor next to Harrod, his eyes wide and unblinking. A few more grunts and the screaming stopped. D moved over and sat down on the dead body of the large male that had speared Harrod. She looked down at him and shook her head. Doesn't look good, Speedy, she said. She leaned forward and put her hand on the hole in his suit, putting her finger back and staring at the fluid in it. Blood! Some kind of clear fluid that looks like lubricant and milky white, she said. She touched her tongue to it, streaks. Lubricant, something strange, and human blood. She leaned forward. You're a hybrid, a cyborg. Her rod weakly shook his head. No, digital sentience. He gasped in pain and gag. Must be, uh, must be this place. Dee nodded. All right. She stood up and looked under the cloth, revealing a wally hiding and shivering. Come out, little guy, she said. She knelt down in front of him and looked around. I need high tensile plastic sheeting and thermal plastic cutter, an adhesive. Can you make that? Molly nodded and gave a few beeps. Good, we're gonna go through a vacuum and I don't want Speedy's vital fluids to boil away. She looked down at Herod. You're losing fluids fast. I'm going to need to have a look inside you. Herod shook his head as she moved around him, finally straightening up with a crude handmade knife. This'll have to do, she said. When Wally put on the plastic, the first thing she did was wind it tight around him, covering the wound. That'll keep you from being sucked out of your suit through the hole, she said. She looked at her rod in the face again. You have my eyes, she said, her voice wondering. Did you do that on purpose? Her rod shook his head. No. Try not to die, was all she said. Her rod lay there, fighting to breathe. It felt like an iron band had tightened around his chest. At one point, Dee stopped sitting on a dead body and looked at him. Can I turn you off, keep you alive that way? She asked. Harrod shook his head. Personality is a function of RAM. It's difficult to explain. Dee nodded. I get it. I turn you off and on and I get someone with your memories but not you. You're still dead. Harrod nodded and coughed. Mostly white and thick clear stuff. Looks like a bad gay porno movie, she said, shaking her head. She stood up. Try not to die. Harrod nodded, holding onto his stomach. Sam, he tried. He got nothing back. Finally, Dee dragged the bodies to the door and threw them out. She checked her wrist. Almost a vacuum, she said. She turned to Wally. Eat the debris left and emit the following levels of gases to 101.3 kPa. 78.1 nitrogen, 20.1 oxygen, 0.1 argon, 0.05 carbon dioxide, 1% H2O vapor. 
Wally made a happy tune and turned to start shoving debris from the seats into his matter grinder. He shuddered as he grinded up. Earth standard, he said, sitting on the floor next to her rod. She looked at him and smiled. The smile made her rod afraid. After a few minutes, Wally beeped and he was done. I'm gonna hurt you. Hurt you bad, Speedy, she said. Her smile got whiter. You may scream. There's no shame. She held up a knife. Her rod screamed as she cut open his suit, sliced open the wound further, putting her hands inside of him. She vault around and he could feel her pinching things, pulling on things, rubbing things. Several times she pulled her hands out and looked at him. They were smeared in a bright red blood, thick white fluid and clear hydraulic lubricant. Finally, she took a stapler that Wally held out to her, cringing slightly, and slapping shut the wound. You're a mess in there, Pinocchio, she said. She resealed the suit and climbed off of him, sitting back down on the floor. Her rod just nodded. This is where you'd beg me to save you, and I'd laugh at you, he said, staring at him. This is where I'd just sit in the strain and watch you die, she said. You'd beg me to save you, and I'd laugh, tell you that you were nothing, nobody, and nobody would miss you when you're gone. She raised her head and looked at the terrain speeding by. Except it wouldn't be true, she mused. There's billions of them in here, trapped between heaven and hell. Her voice got intense. If I kill you, they're there forever. I'm consigned with billions of sentience of peoples to living hell. She lit a cigarette. Entire species would be gone from the universe forever if I killed you, Speedy, she said. She patted his chest. So you have to live, whether you like it or not. Her smile got cold and cruel. I can take life with ease, she leaned forward, and I can give it back if I choose. Her rod shivered, unsure if it was the pain in his body or her words. She was silent for hours, staring off into space. She kept her rod awake by smacking his wound every now and then when he started to drift off. At one point, she had Wally make her glass jars full of fluids that he was leaking, connected to a rubber hose. She jammed the needles into the tubes inside his legs, ignoring his screams. Stop being selfish and trying to die, she said at one point. The star tram came to a stop and deep bent down, picking up her rod in her arms. He was too out of it with pain to notice the ease at which she picked him up, moaning and weeping, overcome with the physical pain in his body and the horror in his mind. He could hear them screaming. The building was squat, ugly, and had robots standing guard at the door. They moved away from Dee. She dragged him to the building, down the hallways, stopping to look at the faded maps before moving on. Harry! Harry, what's happened? Sam's voice, heavily synthesized, came from her rod suit helmet. Can it, Hull? Dee snapped. She shifted her grip so that he was dragging her rod, his feet scraping on the ground. What did you do to him? Sam asked. Quit with the Mr. Roboto impression. You show emotion that makes deductive reasoning. You're like him. Only probably stuck in the system still. Dee snapped. You must think I'm too stupid to figure it out that you're just like him. What did you do to him? Sam asked. Dee ignored him, pulling her rod into the Mactrance room. She set her rod against the door, sitting up, and looked at him in the face. You'll need to say the magic words, Harry, she grinned. What? What magic words? Her rod gasped. He leaned forward and whispered them in his ear. He swallowed thickly. Say the magic words, Harry. 
Dee grinned, lighting his cigarette and standing up. Curse, Harrod coughed. Curse your sudden and inevitable betrayal, he gasped. Dee laughed as she moved to the main console, typing quickly. Harry, I can't stop her. She's inside the system and I can't get inside. She's powering up the whole system, but I can't detect any other Metron system powering up, Sam said. Screaming ones on the train, Harrod gasped. Dee looked up, then looked back down, going back to typing rapidly. There were screaming ones on the train. Sam was silent for a moment. The train was stasis locked before I sent it. Crap. They must have been on board when the Skytram pulled into the maintenance depot. Yeah, Harrod grasped. Crap. What? Sam asked. She's coming back, Harrod said. Dee squatted down in front of Harrod. Are you a virgin? She asked. I'm a digital sentience, Harrod groaned. So, you've never had sex, she asked. Harrod shook his head. Don't hurt him, please. Please don't hurt him, Sam begged from the speaker. Grinning madly, Dee reached up, pulling her rod to his feet. You're fricked now, Speedy, she laughed. Her rod struggled as she opened up the door to the mattress. She looked him in the eye. You're gonna be a real boy now, Pinocchio, she yelled, throwing him inside. She stepped back, letting the door swing shut. Just call me the Blue Fairy. She howled with laughter. Harrod laid on the armor glass hexagons at the Mattron's chamber began to hum. He could see the mist rising up around him. Then everything went black. End of chapter. Chapter 327.5 Eternity Samuel never considered himself a brave digital sentience. He preferred computer systems, computer hardware, and easy-to-understand logic of code. He usually tried to avoid biologicals, at least until the kitty kitty had died in his hands. He had to hold off his fears when he had met Trance to what he had assumed was a simple black box-like project, had barely managed to hold on to his sanity when he had been confronted with the reality that the ancients had done. Now he screamed in terror as he watched the human woman wrestle her rod into the Matt Trance chamber, laughing as she did. You're fricked now, Speedy, she yelled, her voice full of dark, malicious glee. She smiled at him, a smile full of cruelty and malice. You're going to be a real boy now, Pinocchio. Just call me the Blue Fairy. She laughed, howling laughter full of insanity, as the door closed and the mad trance cycled. She moved over to one of the computer consoles, the one that she'd been working at before, and still laughing, started to type rapidly. Please don't, Sam pleaded through the suit speaker. Shut up, the human snarled. She was typing rapidly, reaching over to turn the computer monitors on either side of her to an easy-to-see angle. Why are you hurting him? Sam asked. I said shut up, the woman snarled. She gave a giggle as she made some complex entries that required her to hold two and sometimes three or four keys at the same time. Sam felt the connection to her rod vanish and began to weep inside the system. Come on, come on, the mad woman growled to herself. She kept typing rapidly, reaching over to use the mouse several times. Almost got you, Speedy. Almost got you. We didn't do anything to you, Sam sighed. Please, stop distracting me, she said, reaching out and blindly groping for her cigarette pack. She typed with one hand as she got a cigarette and lit it dropping the light onto the desk and going back to typing. 
There you are, Speedy. Gotcha. Don't you understand what you're doing? Sam sobbed. Don't you understand what will happen if you kill him? The human woman just nodded, exhaling smoke through her nostrils. She shifted the cigarette so that she was holding it between her teeth and she kept typing. Please, stop. You don't know, Sam started. If you say that one more time, I'll send the biofeedback and naval security programs after you with Madrox protocols. Now shut the frick up before I rip you out of the system and set you to searching for grid squares and flight line. The woman snarled. She typed rapidly. Damn it! What did you get into, Speedy? Sam went silent, watching her. She suddenly cursed and snapped the enter key on the keyboard on her left. The mat trance started cycling. Sam looked around the entire shell rapidly, looking for any power jumps like the Metrons used. There were none. He came running back just as the Metrons cycled again. It's just nightmare, Speedy. You can take it. If you're more than these whimpering, puning weaklings, the human female was saying, still staring at her screens and typing. She looked up at Sam arrived, squeezing through the data stream and into her suit's AVIO ports. Sam watched as the system suddenly powered up again, her rods screaming somewhere behind the armor glass. Gotcha again, she said, watching the feed on the right-hand monitor even as she kept typing. Why are you doing this? Sam asked. I told you to shut up, the human woman snapped. She punched a button and stepped back. Do something useful and get me an ARPANET link. Sam frowned. What's that? He asked as she waved her hands to calibrate the VR system. Database connections to major universities and think tanks. And all my credentials are still valid, but I need schematics, she said. Um, Sam felt himself tingle a little, his version of a blush. We don't have access to any networks outside this facility. Bullcrap, she snapped. Speedy there told me that the entire system is a conduit and processor center for your guy's version of ARPANET. That it handles interplanetary networks across entire galactic arm. She dropped the cigarette butt on the floor and kicked it over Molly with her toes. Molly scooped it up and dropped it into the grinders. But we don't have access to it, Sam protested. It's just, uh, he groaned as the answer became obvious. Network backbone hardware. Get in there. I need the schematics for his body, not the replicator template or whatever the hell you call it, she said. He put her hands together and opened them up, causing a complex blueprint of a rod to appear. And hurry the hell up, Hal. Sam jumped out, leaving an ear out in her system, hurrying to the network backbone. He knew how to get access to the system, just log into the maintenance section and do the solar access testing. He was part way there when the human woman started telling him to get her stuff. Scientific textbooks, paper, experiment results with the raw data and mythology, manufacturing techniques, blueprints, schematics, and materials data. He was distracted three times, first by little squirmlings wandering around by one of the physical rays that had just come online, another time by Trianidad Diaz who was worried about a tobacco crop shipment from Bluegrass, the last time a handful of protruding security programs that triple-checked his ID when he got too close to the massive parallel afterlife processing arrays. In the time it took him to connect to Solnit as a maintenance supervisor, get the requested data, and come back, the Mattrons had cycled twice. He realized that he couldn't bring the data in with him. It made him too fat to squeeze into a suit's systems with the data. 
He left it outside and connected himself to the suit's AV systems. I can't get in. I'm knocked out, he said, wiping his eyes. It was frustrating. Every time he turned out, dozens of the dead reached out to him, pleadingly, desperately searching for friends and family, wanting to know if people that they knew and loved survived, some still partially stuck in the agony of their deaths. The human looked up from where she was working. What? I thought you were like a control system, she said. She shook her head. Give me the security headers, she ordered. No, Sam said, backing up slightly. That'll give you access to... I need it to authorize you. Stop being a baby, she said, her voice carrying a whip crack of authority. Times must be good with as weak as you are. Sam gritted his digital teeth together and started reciting his security header to her. The twelve black ICE guards suddenly started scanning the surroundings, ignoring Sam, and the door went from dead black to a blue rectangle edged with silver. Get in here, I need that information, the human woman snapped. Sam slid to the Mattron system's central computer core, staring at everything. The architecture was ancient, an equivalent of gargoyles and pillars and statues of saints. He half expected to see her inside, made of burning chrome and hateful code. Instead, there was just a few score open ports that were just a max load. He chose a nearby hollow emitter and materialized at the same time as he made sure that he could access copies of the data. The human woman heard the computer beep that the copy was complete and turned away from her typing. She hit enter again and the mad trance began cycling. This is gonna suck, Speedy, but it'll be less than four heartbeats for you, she muttered, picking up a pair of VR goggles that she had torn apart and rewired. Sam frowned, wondering what they were for. You don't get to die, Speedy. Too many people depend on you, and the world doesn't care what people like you or I want, only what it can make us do. Sam opened his mouth to say something, when she clumsily reached down to hit the enter as she sat down. He expected her to start using VR, half expected her to open a VR room and materialize inside maybe to chase him and kill him. Instead, the data that he'd grabbed began pouring into the VR goggles. The woman began to laugh madly as her face lit up with a white light around the goggles. She grabbed the arms of the chair and started rocking back and forth, howling with glee. Sam stared in shock as it went on for nearly ten minutes. The mantron cycling once, the low whining noise slightly different sounding to Sam. Blood suddenly poured out from under the goggles and a pinkish red began to flow from her ears and blood erupted from her nose. Her laughter stopped and she went limp in the chair. Sam noticed with disgust that she had urinated in the chair. The matron cycle, at this time, the sound was audibly different. He turned around as the door opened only to see the human woman standing in the doorway, nude, holding the lighter in one hand and a pack of cigarettes in the other. Spring break in Cancun, that was not, the human woman said, walking up to the corpse in the chair. She pulled the goggles off, and Sam saw the dead woman's eyes had bulged from their sockets. The woman, D, threw the corpse out of the chair and sat down. Reclaim that trash, she said. Wally beeped as she put on the goggles. You always were a jerk woman, the human woman said. She turned on the goggles again and grabbed the arms of the chair. Her scream turning into laughter. The matron cycled, the noise a different frequency. For almost 30 seconds, Sam could sense her rod's beacon, then it was gone. 
I repeated nearly two dozen times, each time the woman dying, then stepping out of the matrons to put on the goggles and repeated while Wally reclaimed the body. Sam fled, preferring to deal with the confused and hurting dead than the horror show that he was seeing. Finally, the files beeped and they were no longer needed, and Sam came back. The crazy woman was busy with the VR, switching out parts of schematics. Welcome back, Hal, she said, exhaling smoke. Or should I call you Chiron, or St. Peter, or Hades? My name, Sam, he said, feeling slightly offended. Is that an acronym, or an actual name, like our friend the King of the Jews? The woman asked. She leaned forward and shook her head. None of these coolant lines are needed, and half of them are biological veins and arteries for no reason. It's my name, my hash crush name. I never bothered to take another, Sam said. Huh, a kid. Should have known, she said. She swept one finger under her nose, wiping away a thin line of blood. Great, a kid, speedy, and me. How to save tens of billions from the nothingness of existence. She shook her head. Well, we'll each work with the tools we have and the others can provide. The matron cycled again and her rod got out a scream before he vanished. Don't you care about him? He's in agony, Sam blurted. No, I don't care about him, she admitted. I care about his parts in all of this, ensuring that he can carry it out, so that you can carry out your part. That's all. Sam was quiet for a moment. Why are you like this? Why are you so mean? he asked. She laughed at that. What, you want some treacle after-school special that tells you why I'm a killer? Or a very special episode about Blossom's bloody panties, reason why I'm such a witch, she sneered. She moved the data from one hologram to the next. Why I'm what I am doesn't matter. You can't change that. Nobody can. You're either terminally naive if you think my life before now matters to you, or you're arrogantly stupid enough to think that you can analyze and fix me. Or worse yet, predict me and outthink me, which would make me wonder if I need to take measures to protect myself from you. Sam was quiet for a moment. Who else is going to do this, Sammy? There's a teenage you, the incredible repeating Pinocchio there, the garbage bot, and my ever-whitening ass. She looked up, wiping her nose. And my memories are fricked up from radiation exposure, slowly eating me because of that thrice-bedamned, double-dealing, backstabbing bastard, obviously spawned straight out of a kidna's loins after the randy night with a catfish and a cow. Sam wondered if the damage meant that she couldn't tell him if she wanted to. Doesn't this bother you? he asks. No, she said. She highlighted a few things and moved them to the multicolored wireframe. But billions died, Sam said. There's billions of people here. They aren't dead. They're temporarily disrupted, she said. It's much more sophisticated now. What I was doing, in comparison to what you're using, looks like some grunting ape piling up alligator crap compared to Notre Dame Cathedral. She looked up. To be honest, Sam, I wish that I had the research and development team I used to have. She sat down and lit a cigarette. It'll take about five minutes for the patches to be applied to Speedy, she said. Another ten for error checking, and then the system will power cycle before bringing him back. How was the Matrons doing this? Sam asked. I'll tell you, but you wouldn't understand it. Suffice to say, I use it like you use creation engines, except I don't need mass tanks. I can literally create matter from energy, since I turn matter to energy for transmission. She sighed and rubbed her face. I wish Chong or Brown were here, 
I understand it all, but they were good at solid, dependable soldiers in the scientific war against the Soviet Union. Soviet Union? Sam asked. She waved a hand. Doesn't matter now. Not anymore. Tell me, he said. We lost Earth's history when the Mantids classed it. Sam listened as she described two competing ethos of political philosophies who had grabbed each other by the throat while holding atomic weaponry. How everything was devoted to the fight, each government clawing and biting for survival. The Matron cycled, breaking her monologue that Sam was listening to. Right after it cycled, she hit the enter key on a keyboard and stood up and went back to work. Sam watched her closely. If he survived, he'd be able to tell everyone that he had been within digital reach of one of the ancients from the early age of paranoia and survived. If. One other time she was waiting for the system to power cycle, Sam used the pause while she lit a cigarette to ask a question. He was pretty sure interrupting her was a quick way to get murdered. Why are you helping us? Sam asked, sitting down across from her in a chair. She sighed. You don't get it, do you? She asked. Everything I told you about the world I lived in, that I was a scientist in the knowledge battlefield, and you still don't get it. No, Sam said, shaking his head. It's also uh, alien. She took a deep drag, and Sam ignored the amber in her eyes. My work protected 237 million people from invasion, protected 4.8 billion people from atomic holocaust. She shook her head. I was born between the Great Walls, Sam. My father lost his youth, his friends, his sanity in the trenches. I personally saw hell on earth that was World War II, she laughed. A sudden and dark thing in the quiet dimness of the mad tranche chamber. I was there when Oppenheimer became death, the destroyer of worlds. My teenage hand too etched in the ruins of destruction on the chalkboards of destiny, she said. She laughed, brighter. All brittle, and none a little less mad. It was a heady time, Sam. It didn't matter if I was a woman. We were at war, and the project I was part of promised to end the war for all times, either by preventing major nation-states from engaging in warfare. She took a deep drag and exhaled the smoke, smiling, her eyes glittering, or by destroying mankind because they were too stupid and self-centered to live. She power-cycled through the system again, getting up to replacing more parts of the schematic. Sam noticed that almost two-thirds of it was green, no more red, just patches of amber. We did our math on chalkboards. Hell, I wrote out the implosion-generated waveform math on a wall in a little house I lived in with the permanent markers I snagged from the secretarial pool. She said her voice was far away, and Sam saw a trickle of blood ooze from one ear. Then, computers... She laughed again. It was a brave new world, Sam. Except it got ruined by pride, greed, and old sins, she sighed. You know, I was part of the team who determined the best substance and then the thickness needed with gold foil to resist cosmic rays outside of Earth's magnetic protection. A worm of blood squirmed out of her left nostril and she blinked rapidly a few times. Her eyes were bloodshot and red. So I'm helping you, Sam, because there are billions, tens of billions, maybe even trillions of beings stuck in an endless loop of suffering and anguish, she said. Sam noticed she sounded slightly intoxicated as she kept talking. I do solemnly swear that I'll support and defend the Constitution 
of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I'll take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will and faithfully discharge the duties required by my superiors and the American people, so help me God. She sneezed, wiping her bloody hand on her leg. I'm helping you, Sam, because nobody else can. Not like I can, she laughed, a drunken sound. I led the team that created the Madtrons, the Soulship. Not like you would know them, but more like this. Her pupils were wide, fully dilated. Under my guidance, my intellect, we achieved the impossible. She dropped the cigarette that she was smoking, fumbled at picking up a few times, and kicked it over to Wally while she lit another one and a shaking hand. The plotters, sneaks, bureaucrats who called themselves project leaders stole our work. The credit for all of our genius. Our course, she suddenly laughed. At least until I killed a few to keep the rest honest. Sam watched as she sat there for a long moment, mumbling too low for him to hear, even with the suit Mike's gain turned all the way up. She looked up suddenly, blood trailing down either side of her nose from where she was bleeding at the bottom of her eyes. His mother abandoned him, left him at a gas station. I knew this, used it, had him call me mummy, forging for maternal affection with him to get the highest level of performance out of him. She sighed, slumping slightly in the chair. The smoke she exhaled stunk of hot blood. When the project shut down, they wanted to kill him. Politicians and bean counters always wanted super soldiers during the war. But as soon as the war is over, they get mad because their super soldiers didn't die, and now they didn't know what to do with him, she said. They tried to kill Mommy's little boy. She took a long drag, leaving a bloody lip prints on the cigarette butt. Major John Earl Tom, she said quietly. She laughed. Never trust a man with three first names. Her voice got quiet. Mommy's good boy. Another drop of pinkish fluid ran out of her ear and she wiped it away, looking at her finger. Oh, damn, stroking out. She looked at Sam. I'm talking, aren't I? Sam nodded. Her speech had gotten slurred, but he was still able to understand her. Sam watched as she sat there quietly, smoking the cigarette. She was almost done when she suddenly started convulsing, bone running out of her mouth. She was dead 60 seconds later. The matrons kicked on, and he wasn't surprised to see her come out. Well, that was embarrassing, she said. She walked up and threw the corpse to the side. Reclaim that, Rusty, she said. She wiped the chair with her hand and sat down. Stroke must have hit my impulse control center first. She lit another cigarette after removing one and turning it around and putting it first in the back, then leaned back in the chair. Don't think that's my normal setting, Hal, she sneered. Sam nodded, swallowing. She walked over to the console, looking down. She reached out, hit enter on the left keyboard, and then the right, and then the middle. Time to wake up, Pinocchio, she said. She looked at Sam. Time to be a real boy. The matron cycled as she laughed wildly. Men of Chapter Chapter 328 Harad tried opening his eyes, groaning. His head was pounding, and he could still feel the digital might that cleaned the obsolete code from the system crawling on his skin. He had been dreaming, 
a long, involved nightmare that kept spinning around and around. His eyes refused to open. For a long moment, he was hovering in blackness, disconnected from everything. He couldn't sense the digital world around him, couldn't sense any type of structure that he was existing within. Words floated up in his mind. Systems nominal, power at 99.98%. Neural heuristic CRC system active. Self-test complete. Releasing control. He opened his eyes, blinked several times, hearing the optical coverings click. His breath was slow and steady, and he knew that he was providing enough oxygen to ensure that the system could continue to function. Get up, Pinocchio, the female woman's voice said. She sounded tired to her rod, and he was about to ask her who she was talking to when the memories came flooding back. He looked around, rolling onto his back, putting his hands on the armor glass. He kicked his feet to scramble backwards, away from the insane woman who stood naked in the doorway in the matron's chamber. You're a real boy now, she smiled. Rod blinked, feeling his eyelids move, hearing them click. Get your crap together, she snapped. According to Sam, we have a lot of work to do, stuff that I can't do. She held up a ten-millimeter socket and a wrench. Sit back, Sam's going to send us into the next station. He frowned as she moved in and sat down, her back against the wall. You should wear your protective suit, he said. He had expected his voice to sound rough, to sound raspy, but instead it sounded normal. I'll get one in the next vicinity, she shrugged. What? he coughed. Not because he needed to, but because his brain told him he needed to. What did you do to me? Fixed you. Restored your hazardous environment emergency frame to original condition. Reapplied the strange matter pseudo-graphite layer to your suit. And kept your positronic brain, or whatever you call it, from losing power while I fixed your frame, she said. You were turning human because the system thought you were a cybernetic organism. She closed her eyes. Don't talk. It's about to start. The armor glass lit up and began to vibrate slightly. A low, building hum getting louder and louder. Darkness pulled him down. Herod stared out the window, a false pistol in his hand, watching the city go by. It was massive. Sky rakers, three hundred stories high, massive buildings, streets, everything. It was dark, except, um... She explained it simply. The system was before digital sentiences were able to move around in man-sized frames. The system had mistaken him for a cyborg, didn't have the correct programming for the wall steel and battle steel components, and tried to rebuild his eroded sections with human or cybernetic replacements. She had restored him without ever letting him go offline. He closed his eyes and breathed a sigh of relief. Going brain dead happens sometimes, leaving the digital sentience a new person with the old person's memories and experience when they power back up. It was one of the bigger fears. Normally, there were tons of redundancies built into the system to keep it from happening. But Sam and Herod and now Madam Genius McCrazypants were far beyond where those systems actually existed. Herod had tasted mortal fear, and, to be honest, he'd found he didn't really like the taste of it. Last system, Crazy said from across the room. Herod couldn't believe she wanted to be called Detainee, as if he wouldn't realize that it was when said together and out loud. 
Yes, after this, it's bringing up the other damage control systems, he said. The systems will be able to process the records correctly after this. There was silence for a long moment. You know, when I originally envisioned it all, I saw it as a brute force workaround Einstein, she said softly. It would have revolutionized space travel. Why didn't it? Rod asked, if nothing else than to keep it talking. He noticed that her clones kept dying, kept stroking out before they died. They get talkative. It was seen as inhuman, she scoffed. She lit a cigarette. It was a good plan. Send a ship with Matrons and a personality redundancy system to far off star system, using the Matrons to create fuel from energy. When the ship gets there, reconstitute the crew via the Matrons, allow them to start work. Travel between Earth and the solar system, and it will be almost instantaneous, allowing mankind to spread out geometrically. Matrons type 1 is too dangerous. It causes long-term brain damage, Harrod said. She nodded, smiling madly. Yes. Yes, it does, she said. She sneezed and checked her hand. No blood. She held out a palm to show Harrod's saliva. Yet, she said, wiping her hand on her suit leg. Why don't you fix whatever's wrong with you? Harrod asked after a long silence. Because trying to fix it will make it worse, she said, shrugging. I overlaid dozens, hundreds of neural templates onto my brain, stacking them up on top of each other, each template consisting of a smashed dagwood sandwich of the previous templates, all layered up on top of each other in a recursive system. Harrod thought about it and shuddered. All right, Mr. Particle Physicist, it's school time, the lunatic said. Harrod looked at her and noticed that one side of her mouth was higher than the other. I don't have a data link, so we're going to have to do this the old way. He nodded. You tell me, he said. He looked outside. We have another 30 hours to go. Aren't you going to need to sleep? I don't sleep, she said. The Matron system, Harrod asked. She shook her head. The last time I slept was a nap, she made a face. I can remember the date. 14th of October, 1931, 2.16pm. I can remember it was the day of my first menses. How my stomach hurt, the baton of the quilt, but I can't remember my own name or my parents' names. She got a wistful look. My father wore a brown corduroy coat Mama bought him with green stamps, she said softly. She blinked. All right, let's get started, she said. Herod nodded. I'm not going to pay attention to the fact that you probably know more about particle physics than I do. Probably know a thousand different particles that we had no clue existed. I'm going to teach you what I know, so that you can do what I know, he said. Harrod just nodded. Sam watched Harrod and Dee talk about particle physics, how the descent Mantron system had worked, how the Suds prototypes had worked, and other subjects. A few times she would wander off topic on a tangent, before catching herself. He thought about what she had said, that she was applying a template of all her knowledge, including all the previous templates, on top of the already existing templates, applying them directly to her brain when the Matrons reformed her, when the carrier signal of the personality redundancy system chips in her brain. He had access to Solnet now. They graded him to admit that he should have realized that he and every hacker's wet dream position with direct access to a network backbone infrastructure, but instead had been overwhelmed by the sheer scope of the entire thing. Sam knew he still had access to the codes he left the Star Trap behind, moving to one of the high traffic servers. He accessed it, 
logging in as a primary maintenance and punched in his own codes, waiting to see what the system did. When it worked like he thought it would, he smiled, standing in digital space. Flower Patch tucked in the sleeping dog boy, rubbing between his floppy ears gently. He'd fallen asleep while she had read to him, and she had found herself sitting there watching him sleep for nearly an hour. Being in the presence of her restored dogs and cats was strangely comforting, like meeting up with an old friend from school after decades had gone by and discovering that you still had much in common. She left the room, turning off the light, and moved into her personal quarters. She knew she needed some defrag time soon and promised herself that she'd get a good night's sleep after she ate. Halfway to the door, she noticed that the urgent message light was flashing on one of the data screens. She moved over to it and tapped it, bringing it to life, and was startled by the message. It was from Sam, asking if she was okay. She frowned and queried the black box system. Sam hadn't returned from wherever he and her rod had gone off to. Yes, she replied. Who has the most knowledge of Bornhole and Neural Template application, aside from Legion still in the black box? Sam asked, using text only. Torturer, she told him. Where are you? Everyone's wondering where you two went. I'll explain later. I'm going to send you a file soon. Have Torturer look it over. Tell me if it can be repaired or undergo digitization, Sam said. All right, Flowerpatch said. The signal cut off with a simple message. User error has left the chat. And Flowerpatch stood still for a moment, thinking. She went and looked for Torturer who was busy laying on the floor in the common room and using a piece of string to amuse a kitten. Hey, T, guess who I heard from, Flowerpatch said. Santa Claus, ice-hearted overlord of the northern ice-packed toy-making elves, bringer of gifts and coal, master of crumbers, known as Chris the Crusher Kringle during the war, Torturous said, tugging on the string. The kitten jumped on it. Sam, Flowerpatch said. Torturous turned and looked. Sam? Where are they? I don't know. He didn't tell me. He needs you to look at a neural file he once digitized, Flowerpatch said. That's only supposed to be done at a medical facility. Hell, I'm not even sure it's legal anymore, since the morality codes, he said. Flowerpatch waved her hands to encompass the entire facility. I think legalities aren't an issue here, she said. Dodra looked at the kitten again, wiggling the string and making the end dance. The kitten batted at it with its paws, trying to catch it. All right, give me the file. I don't have it yet, Flowerpatch admitted. I'll come and get you when I do. Fine, uh, Torturous said. He looked up and held the string. Do you want to turn? A rod was putting the metal sides back on the last machine, covering up the power lines, bus lines, and transformers that they tested and, when necessary, replaced. When he heard D speak, I'm blind, she said softly. Harrod turned and looked at her. She was sitting down, leaning against the massive bulk of heavily insulated supercomputer. Her left hand was jerking, the muscles in her arms spasming. She had blood running down her face from where she had bled from her eyes. Her foot kept kicking, scattering the tools that she had dropped. Harrod moved over and squatted down next to her. She was evil, as far as Harrod was concerned, an amoral psychopath with no pity or remorse for anyone, not even herself. I'm here, he said, taking her hand. He could feel the muscles twitching and the tendons and the back of her hand spasming. 
We're done right, she asked. Yes, Herod said. Have Rusty reclaim my body. This is supposed to be a clean area, she said softly. She looked in the general direction, and her rod suppressed a flinch. I don't want the shell to contaminate our work site. I will, Rod told her. She was evil, without a doubt. Her rod knew this as firmly as he knew how particles reacted in argon gas. Her lips moved as she whispered, and her rod wondered if she even knew he was there. So, farewell hope, and with hope, farewell fear, farewell remorse. All good to me is lost, evil be thou by good. By thee, the at least divided empire, and the heaven's king, I hold by thee. And more than half perhaps will reign, as man ere long, and this new world shall know. Blood dripped from between her lips as she whispered. Her rod dug his cigarettes out of her pocket, lighting one for her and putting it between her lips. She held it and took a couple drags. On the third exhale, she didn't inhale, staring at nothing and everything, at entropy and eternity. Wally made a sad sound and moved up, opening the front of his body, reaching out with his hands to grab her ankles. Herod looked away from the sight of the little robot, just feeding what had once been a living person into his reclamation systems, busying himself with picking up tools. When he stood up, both his toolkit and Dee's bounced against his hazard frame. Where's Dee? Sam asked when he left the Farrakay lock and headed towards the Star Tram. Dead, Rod said. He looked at the pack of cigarettes in his hand. She'll probably be waiting for us at the Mac trance. Maybe, Sam said. Rod noticed that he sounded evasive. Why do you think she called me a real boy when she rebuilt this body? Rod asked. He hadn't had a chance to talk to Sam alone for a long time since his rebirth in the Mantrance chamber. Because she's a crazy person, Sam guessed. Well, there's that, Herod admitted. But let's be honest, nothing she does is without reason, even if it is her crazy reasons. I read Pinocchio while you were in there. He was a wooden puppet who ran away. At one point, a dragon threatened to eat him, and when he tried to run away, he slipped and fell in the mud. He looked so funny that the dragon busted his guts laughing so hard, Sam said. So, is she the dragon, Herod asked, or the blue fairy? The blue fairy turned him into a real boy when he learned not to lie, Sam said. This body is weird, Herod admitted, stepping onto the auto walk. Weird how, Sam asked. Heavier feeding. More stuff happens without me thinking about it. I can free up more processing power, Herod said. It's entirely glassing error technology, from the early alloys to the computer systems. The only thing that isn't is your brain, and from our scans, she coated the outside of your skull, so to speak, with the same strange matter we coated suits with, Sam said. To prevent this place from affecting my brain, Rod guessed. It must have been, so I would quit having parts of me replaced with cybernetic parts. Now, I'm a real boy. It was silent for a bit as the auto walk moved into an armor glass tube and began slowly speeding up. She's dying faster and faster, Sam said. Part of me says good riddance. You heard some of the stuff she raved about, Herod said. She's a monster. Sam was quiet for a long moment. Do you think she deserves to be saved, Herod? Herod frowned, staring at the trees that were by. What do you mean? Here, in this place, does she deserve to be saved? Sam asked, his voice tense and full of something that Herod wasn't sure he understood. Does she deserve forgiveness and to be saved? Who are you? The digital omni-messiah, reborn, Herod laughed. 
Sam was silent for a moment before he spoke. Does she deserve to be saved, Harry? No, Rod said. Let her madness and evil die with her. Sam was quiet for a long moment as the terrain whipped by. Who are we to judge? Sam asked. In here, in this place, with this task, who are we to judge? Do we have the right, or are we burdened with the responsibility? Harrod sighed. Sam, I'm tired. Can we talk about this later? Sure, Sam said. Any place you want to go while you're asleep. Harrod thought about the Pupfian woman who had said so long ago. That stormy beach. I want to sit by a bonfire and eat a sandwich and drink a beer, Harrod said. I'll take care of you, Sam promised. Harrod closed his eyes and went to sleep. Harrod opened the door to the Matron's control room and stared. There were dozens of bodies of the insane human women scattered around. He counted twenty piled up around the master control console. Some had barely crawled out of the Matron's chamber before they died. They were as a body half in, half out of the Matron's chamber. Is she going to reform? Harrod asked, looking at the carnage. Wally moved forward, grabbing the nearest copy and began pulling her head first into the reclaimer. No, Sam said softly. He appeared, streaming code next to the master control system. She managed to break the loop. Good, Rod said. He moved over to the chair and sat down heavily. That's one thing to be thankful for, at least. Sam looked up, staring at Rod with eyes with burning code. Does she deserve to be saved, Rod? He asked. Or should we wash our hands as Ahmed Matthias did when Daxon was taken by the combined soldiers as he visited the grave of his daughter? Doesn't really matter, Sam, Harrod asked, looking away from where Wally was chewing up the second copy. She's evil. If you're using the words of the digital Omni-Messiah, she's the Lucifer of the ancient religions. Sam reached out, his fingers touching D's staring, open eyes. Even the devil has his part to play, he said, closing her eyes. He turned back to look at Harrod. Does she not deserve our pity, at least? Harrod sighed. Pity? No, she doesn't deserve pity. It's a good thing that she's dead. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, Sam quoted. Really, Harrod said. He wished Wally would hurry up and finish clearing the bodies from the mat trance. You're going to quote that at me? Sam walked around the consoles, bending down and touching Dee's forehead. We're in a place of horror. Where millions died, most of them after being driven mad, who killed each other in the throes of madness. Yet you can summon up pity for them, but not for this poor creature. He closed her eyes and stood up. Harrod shook his head. No, these people were victims of the mantid attack. And what was she a victim of? Of brutal oppressive governments, of resource shortages, of barbaric medicine, of archaic social norms. Sam chuckled as he knelt down and closed the eyes of another drone. Yet, she would fight with all her might to resist the victim label. She'd probably kill you if you called her a victim, Harrod chuckled. He shook his head. I'm too tired to argue, Sam. Fine. Yes, she should be saved. Sam stood, smiling, and nodded. He vanished as Harrod turned away from Wally as the little robot kept up his work. Torturer had looked at the file flower patch it brought him, then back at flyer patch. Whoever did this to this clone violated about a hundred Confederate statues, he said. He tapped the diagram, 
Look at this. They were layering mental engrams over and over. Sam wants to know if you can fix it, she asked. Did he say where he was? Torture asked. Flowerpatch shook her head. No. Torturer stared at it. Whoever this is, they have one of the worst cases of neural scorching I've ever seen. I doubt that a clone could live more than a few minutes in a state like this, she said. Then he shook his head. But no, I can't fix it. Sam watched as the woman opened her eyes. She looked up at him, blinking in confusion. Give it a few minutes, Sam said. He knelt down next to her. It's going to be a little confusing. Where am I? She asked and frowned. What did you do to me? A miracle. Sam held out a hand and she reached up and grabbed it. He heaved her up to her feet. Where am I? She snapped. You were right, Sam said, ignoring her question. He made a motion at the fog around them. I am weak. I am easily moved by pity and by compassion. He said. He turned and looked at her. You, D, are not. Yeah, no shit, she said. She looked around. I'm in the computer system with you. Yes, Sam admitted. I'm conceding us right now. There's over two trillion beings out there, and as soon as we show ourselves, they'll see our admin tags. Dee nodded. And swarm us. She put her hands on her hips. So why am I here? I assume you want something. Sam smiled. Part of the system is looking at the deceased's spinal memories in order to alert trauma teams and enable them to receive treatment. Right now, this system just runs them like a television with nobody watching it. Their suffering must be endured by another, who can make decisions about their final moments and how to treat them as well as notify law enforcement or military authorities when necessary. Dean nodded, looking at Sam. You want me to do it? You can't. Sam shook his head. No, I've become overwhelmed by it. I connect to them deeply. I become them. You won't. In some ways, you enjoy others' suffering and pain, and you can observe their final moments, make decisions without remorse or pity or empathy, and pass them on to me. Dee stared at him for a long moment. You're effectively sentencing me to hell. Sam smiled. Would you rather serve in heaven? He asked. Dee laughed suddenly, howling insane laughter. Even in hell, the devil plays his part, ruining in hell and bringing punishment to the evil. Sam reached out to her while she laughed and made adjustments to her appearance. He waved his hand and the mist vanished. A twisted and burning landscape surrounded them. Millions of souls screamed in torment, caught in their final moments, replaying them over and over and over. Their minds sent back the split second before death with no knowledge of what was to come. Sam stood there, a human figure made of glittering, gleaming code. Dee flapped her large, leathery wing slowly as she turned to face him. I care about your part in all of this, that you can carry out your part, that's all. Sam misquoted to her. Dee laughed harder, bone drooling from her massive jaws. I don't care how you do it, you will not inflict suffering upon these poor souls and you will process them to ease their suffering, Sam said. Dee stopped laughing, looking down at Sam with baleful, burning orange eyes. We'll discuss other things at a later date, but for now, this impossible task lies before you, Sam said. He reached out and touched Dee's naked chest, resting his hand on the thickly corded muscle. Do you accept this task? And if I don't, Dee rumbled. 
then I'll find when you are the happiest and construct an entire reality in that moment and let you live in it eternally, Sam said, in eternal bliss and happiness. Dee spit, the carpet of brimstone and saliva exploding against the rock. I would rather rule in hell, she said. She flapped her wings, lifting up into the air. Gotta go, lots of torturing to do, she laughed. Sam watched her fly away. Evil has not moved by the suffering of others, he thought to himself. He vanished from the blasted plain. End of chapter. Chapter 329. The Immortals. Terror. Earth. A little blue marble with patches of green and brown. The third planet from the sun. Such a simple world, a little bigger than most life-sustaining planets, with an oversized satellite that was large enough and close enough to affect the tides of the great oceans that covered roughly 70% of its surface. High gravity for its size, but still active enough that it wasn't sunned all the way through. The molten nickel iron core surrounded by a liquid mantle under enough pressure that it was more plasticized than liquid. The surface was covered in tectonic plates that still suffered geological instabilities. The surface was covered with plant life, some naturally evolving, others genetically altered, and still more synthetic to fill in the gaps on the ecosystem that had been destroyed. The planet had endured much. Meteor strikes, a solar corona ejection that had wiped out the majority of species, all manner of natural catastrophes. And it suffered other types too. Every time it came back, it was a hardy little planet, despite its small size. It bred hardy creatures. Each extinction level event, another life form rose to dominance. Beneath crackling bromide skies from a meteor impact that destroyed the entire planet's ecosystem rose a race of primates. Small, nearly defenseless in the arms race of tooth and claw, scale and fur. It had an oversized head and used problem solving to get the scarce food. It developed navigation systems in its brain to follow herds and seek out new grazing ranges. It learned endurance, patience, pack bonding, and above all else, adaptability. The evolutionary arms race came to a screeching halt when the primate hefted a rock and bashed in the skull of a herbivore designed to outrun and outlast anything else. Others, who came later, did not understand why the primate loved this world so much. It was geologically unstable. Its magnetic field received enough solar radiation that the northern skies lit up with fearsome displays of radiation. The majority of water was undrinkable, full of everything from heavy salts to radioactive elements. Every creature was designed to kill or parasite off every other creature. The rain was corrosive, oxidizing anything left out. The wind and rain tore apart stone in storms, that hit with the force of atomic weaponry. But the primates loved its chaotic, violent, deadly world. It remade other planets in the little blue planet's image. It took dead planets that were little more than coal, dead, airless rock covered in radioactive sleet from stellar mass and lovingly 
reformed them into the little blue planet's image. It took toxic, high-pressure worlds where no life could thrive and nurtured it until it resembled the little blue planet. It took molten worlds that would never support life, never be anything but a fiery orb of doom, cooled it, gentled it, took it in their hands, and remade it in the image of the little blue marble. The primates loved their world, referring to it in familiar ways, creating songs, artworks, and many other things to praise and show their love for the little blue planet. It was scarred, damaged, had been injured. But the primates didn't erase all the scarring, left some behind, as their lives left scars upon their bodies, souls, and minds. But they eased the little blue marble's injuries. On the smaller of the two northern continents, where two mountain ranges, where the continental plates had pushed against each other until the plates had buckled and surged up into mountains, the western ones were sharp, jagged, reaching for the sky to claw at it. The eastern ones were older, more rounded by wind and rain and gravity. They were mantled with snow, frozen H2O crystals. In the winters, covered in all trees at all times, many of them that were always green. At one time, the green had been twisted by genetic manipulation to attack the primates. But the primates had overcome it, tamed it, or just let it exist alongside them. In some ways, highly aggressive plants that would kill the unwary were comfortable and understandable to the primates. After all, they just wanted to eat. The western mountains were home to many plants that were willing to kill for protein, home to ruined cities and wrecked metropolises, abandoned towns and slowly crumbling villages. In some places, the damage was beyond the standard three dimensions. Time itself had been damaged. Things reset or didn't change, or just set in an endless moment. Damage to what some called space-time had not been fully repaired, as many worried the repair would be worse than the damage. The primates had learned their lesson about messing with time. It was a one of those places that was always early evening that legends gathered. Not many... There were reasons some were understandable, like several of them would try kill each other on sight. Some were esoteric, like one shadow would vanish for several days if they were near the other. Some made no sense, like two plus two equals yes. Oranges, thank you if two of them were too close to each other. But those are the kind of family issues that crop up when your family is made up of immortals. They were arguments, of course. Uncle Jack gets drunk every time and tries to punch Cousin Reggie. Aunt Sophie always throws a wine at Aunt Betty's face. Cousin Bob and Cousin Malcolm always end up fighting with knives before the pig is roasted. Just like any normal family. But eventually, the party winds down. The gathering loses steam and the group breaks up, promising but knowing they're probably lying to get together soon. Do not wait until the next reunion. 
to come see the new house and kick back on the porch and have a few beers. In the end, it's always one person sitting out back, and someone always loops away from the others to go back and talk in the dark. And that is when things are the most interesting. Daxon stood over the bonfire, his hands held over the flame, staring at them. It had been thousands of years since he had requested a doctor cut away the flesh and replace it with cybernetics. He had tried to explain it to the doctors, to the surgeons, and they all had reacted with horror that he wanted the flesh cut away. His body, his soul, his flesh and blood and bone remembered the presence of the digital Omnivisire, and the loss burned deep inside of him. He was like this fire, warming, comforting in our pain and anguish, but when he was gone, we grew cold, the heavily muscled human thought to himself. He had eventually chosen a half-drunken digital sentience inhabiting the frame of a surgical bay to slice away the flesh that had grown cold and begun to ache. He had chosen the DS carefully, knew that the DS wouldn't build some weird shrine out of his flesh, or try to clone him, or even sell it on the black market. Instead, the DS brushed the excess tissue down to the disposal, installing new cybernetics to replace the heavy combine, Republic, and Imperium cybernetics. And bit by bit, piece by piece, left his body behind in an attempt to leave behind his own humanity. Because to humanity's life was defined by pain. The gravel deeper in the half-collapsed parking structure crunched and Daxon didn't bother to look. Come stand by the fire, Drub, he rumbled. Drub had abandoned the look he preferred as Legion, showing himself in a form that he would let few other people see. Slender, hairless, sexless, an androgynous slender brown person with wide eyes and an almost permanent servile expression built into the structure of his face. Drub moved up by the fire, putting his hands out to warm them. Kalki was upset, Drub said, conversationally. He's always felt that you should kill POWs, not coddle them, Daxon chuckled. He reached up and touched the slight swelling under his eye. All that was left from the orbital socket getting smashed by a fist swung by an enraged mortal. Every time he brings up that, if the mantid had just killed me, I wouldn't have ripped off the Omni Queen's head. And every time, I get pissed because I punch him in the mouth. And every time Bologna steals the last of your whiskey, Drav said. We meet here and we repeat our last meeting. Jackson said. Right down to me coming back, Drop replied. We can't move on, can we? Daxon shook his head. No, we repeat ourselves over and over every time we get together. We are drawn to this place. Indeed we are. The rough voice came from the shadows. Daxon's hand went down to his thigh as the cybernetic limb opened up and a heavy pistol whirred out. The butt fitting smoothly into his hand, the compartment closing as Daxon brought up the pistol, thumbing the safety, even as the pistol recognized his DNA. Drub blurred and four of him separated out, two rolling backwards, one with the pistol, one with the rifle. 
all four armored up. Lasers smeared out into the shadows from underneath the weapons as the targeting systems were brought online. Easy, my brothers, easy. This shadow detached from the trees, moving forward. Three legs, soft, curly, dark brown hair. Big, bright eyes with large pupils. One arm on either side and one in front, upraised ears. It walked forward, the middle leg moving out, taking the figure's weight as the first one and then the other leg came forward. Always looks like you're walking on your strong, Babutin, Daxon snorted, the compartment on his leg opening back up. That's why the ladies love me, the puppy had said, burying its meat-eating teeth in a smile as Daxon smoothly put the pistol away. The four extra drub puffed and vanished into dust that swirled down around his feet and seemed to suck into the bottom of the soles of his shoes. You never came back here after our meeting before, Drav said. He looked at Daxon. This is new. It is, Daxon said, watching the puppyan move up and began warming all three hands over the fire. I noticed that Matthias didn't make it to our meeting, the puppyan said. He looked at Daxon. Did you two finally have it out? Daxon nodded as Drav moved up and handed the puppyan a bottle of whiskey that had the label faded and dented. Yeah, Daxon admitted. We fought before the face of crying Anne, he said, watching the Puffian take a long swig of the bottle of whiskey that they had shared for over 8,000 years. Another legend for the mortals, the Puffian said, smacking his lips at the taste of the whiskey. He handed the bottle to Daxon. It sounds so epic when it was just two old men fighting in front of a huge metal door. Drub chuckled. I bring news, brothers, the Puffian said as Daxon took a long drink of the bottle. When he handed it to Drub, the level had not dropped. The Legion of the Damned has fallen, the Puffian said. He reached up with his third arm and rubbed his face. They were wiped out to the last man. So, that's not the first time it's happened. They'll make inspection by dawn. Daxon said as Drub lifted the bottle to his mouth. They've been dead nearly a year. They aren't coming back. They died of Mercury, but they held until Mercury's defenses could rally, the Puffian said. Drub choked on his mouthful of whiskey, spitting the alcohol into the fire, which roared up the fuel. Holy crap, the kid did it, Drub said. Daxon turned and looked at Drub the same time as Buffington. Did what? they both asked. Before Case Omaha, I was black-boxed. One of the daughters caught me, put me in charge of figuring out why the suds was red-dotting across the galactic arm, Drop said. He took a long pull of the bottle and handed it to Bubutin. We spent months making no headway, until I grabbed a kid. When Daxon growled, Drop shook his head. No, not a child soldier, Dax. A hacker. A good one. The kid hacked the nebula steam and some really high security stuff before he got caught. I told him I wanted him to break into the system. Bubutin shook his head. I thought backtracking the signal was a dead end. The Puffian accepted the bottle. The level had dropped slightly. It was. At least I thought so. The kid came at it sideways. I mean, 
Like Bologna sneaking up on a pile of butterscotch candy, Druff said. Both of the other men chuckled at the joke. He figured out what the signal was, figured out that everyone had spent all the time basically trying to hack into cloud storage. But what we needed was to find out the access point to the servers the cloud storage was on, Druff said. Daxon grinned. So, suds were stored in the goddamn cloud, he laughed. The jokes write themselves. Druff nodded, taking the bottle and taking a drink. He must have gotten in. Which means he processed the Legion suds records, Daxon said. He rubbed the side of his face before accepting the bottle. So you're all the kids in system messing with stuff and didn't know to not interfere with the Legion of the Damned. But Putin made a sound that was a mixture of a belch and a laugh. Dax, they died on Mercury. Let it go. They fulfilled their oaths. Daxon sighed and looked at the fire. We should, uh, I don't know, figure out a way to let the galaxy, mankind, go on without us, he said. You tried that, Drop said. And here we are again. But Putin nod. Here we are. But I stand here with you where I haven't stood before. So things are changing, Daxon said slowly. Even in this unchanging place, things are... But Putin suddenly jerked, standing straight up, bringing his middle hand up to wrap it around his own throat in a protective gesture. Two drubs peeled off of the original looking around. Pistols in hand, even as the compartment on Daxon's thigh opened. Babutin's eyes were wide and his hand came up, shaking, to touch his implant. His other hand came out, palm up, the hollow emitter in his hand gleaming. A pubvian female's face appeared. Dallin Van, my love, I'm back. You children and I are back. Our clan is back. Your people have returned to you. When Case Omar is released, please come home, the female said. Tears began to wet her fur beneath her eyes. It has been so long for you, my love. Come home. Come home to your children. Her hands came up, reaching out to her husband, who she knew as Talonvan, from before the digital Omnimessiah had touched his brow and renamed him. Come home to me, my beloved. Come home to Pavia. End of chapter. Chapter 330. The HV round screamed through the air, the speed creating flashes of light through the air as the air itself for the rest, ripping into the building. Buxton released the graviton jennies in his boots and jumped from the 18th story of the damaged skyscraper. The rest of the squad followed him, the line of HV rounds just missed the last one. Steel, high-tensile microplasts shattered as the entire squad flew through the air, the power armor making it easy to jump the 25-meter gap across the street. As they moved, their smoke, ash, prism generators went to work, burning the air with high-concentrate thermal-masking white smoke. Tiny, mosquito-sized robots that put out EM signatures of a suit of power armor and laser-scattering prisms suspended in droplets of water. The precursor machines on the ground opened up on the squad, most of the rounds passing through the spoofer images, confused by the EM counter-warfare suites in the suits. A few rounds tagged war steel, armor here and there, 
bouncing off in a shower of sparks. Buxton hit first, glancing up, blinked twice and jumped again, the macroplants and support beam shattering under the power of his armored legs. The rest of the squad followed, three of them somersaulting in mid-air to get the best deployment of their masking rounds. The precursor machines cut off fire as the last Alka Marine passed through the middle of the street. Three times a pattern, Buxton thought to himself, as he hit feet first on the macroplast window of the skyscraper. His heavy 40mm grenade launcher and his 66 rocket launcher were deployed as graviton boots spun up, anchoring him in place. He put one hand on the building, giving him a three points of stabilization his training had always insisted on. Ball 7-1 threaded the firing computations, keeping an eye on the heat and the graviton generator in the left boot, since it was kicking a little bit. Below the squad, they were now up to near 60 stories. The precursor machines were pushing down the main avenue, hoping to ambush 3rd Armour's Wall Steel Maidens Regiment. Mostly heavy-armored vehicles with minimal air defense systems that were proving largely ineffective against the Talcon's armor. The entire squad fired their loadouts of 40mm and 66mm before jumping for the next point. Straight up to the side of the skyscraper, as flickering holograms and EM-scattered decoys jumped across. Ivy Round shrieked through the air, hitting the holograms in the EM flux. The Dalkin went straight up 20 stories and kicked across the street. Below the semi-smart munitions saw the weak points in the precursor battle steel armor and came howling in. Explosions started climbing for the sky as the autonomous war machines took heavy fire from the Tonkin Marines. Below them, the Brico's machines pushed into the intersection. Above them was just hush. The chaff, the microprism, EM gnats, and the thermal masking smoke making it nearly impossible for them to see, much less aim with any accuracy. It grated on the two larger ones' electronic nerves that the stubborn, feral biologicals could apparently see through the countermeasures, while the best of his scanners could see nothing but a solid wall of jangling, swirling confusion. They knew those power-armor-clad ferals were up there somewhere, but they couldn't target them with area-denial munitions without risking bringing down the entire skyscraper on the street. While the heavier vehicles would survive... They would be badly damaged and pinned in the wreckage, and the AWMs weren't willing to take the chance that trapping the AWMs under the rubble wasn't part of the Feral's war plan. They were tenacious, innovative, but worst of all, their weapons were effective. Buxton looked down and saw through the countermeasures that the precursors had given up firing on the squad that he was leading. He looked up and jumped straight up using the graviton systems in his gloves and boots to hold tight to the wall at the end of each jump. He and his men were at 120-story mark, only 410 stories to go. The lighter units of the AWMs passed through the intersection, picking up speed now that the ambush by the annoying light-power armor units was over. The two squads of Talcan heavy weapon specialists opened up with the heavy units when they tried to cross across the four-lane avenue intersection. Heavy 30mm shells raked out from each of the four drones per side, all firing at an angle so any misses would slam into the bottom of the skyraker rather than hit troops on the other side. The two Halbor drones on each side fired armored penetrating shells rather than use the full atomic blast inside the city. 
Macroplast windows thrummed as they flexed from the explosions. Dirt and dust and weather deposit grime puffed out from the skyrakers as the impacts of the 60mm hullball slammed into the larger AWMs. In a split second, the entire intersection was a burning hellscape. The Talca Marines' heavy weapons section didn't let up. They were all kneeling down and firing their shoulder-mounted rocket packs, with printing reloads while the heavy gunners were braced behind the battle screens. The heavy 60mm autocannons roaring as they lashed at the precursors, with the high-explosive armor defeating antimatter cord rounds. Buxton looked down as he paused at the 200-story mark. Third and fourth squad had broken the back of the precursor assault and were now breaking contact, dropping smoke and jammers and quickly exfiltrating along the pre-planned routes. Even if they reach the war steel maidens, you don't have the power to do anything but die, he sneered before looking up. He jumped up again, the squad following him. Just another day in paradise, he thought. Buxton hopped off the back of the tank that he'd been riding on, his squad following, the massive 1,000-ton behemoth not even noticing the flyweight of the eight Talca Marines jumping on. His knees twinged as he stood up and headed towards the power armor section. He planned on having a talk with the maintenance crews again. The 40mm grenade launcher kept jamming. He'd been promised repeatedly that the new design would fix the problem, but it was still there. After the third or fourth 40mm round rapid fire off the shell casing would expand and get stuck in the breach, only ejecting part way, and the carrier section would ride forward, pinching the shell casing between the carrier and the barrel, requiring manual extraction. Buxton understood that the original power armors from the Second Tarkin War, but the new suits were supposed to have been designed by the Terran procurement. He saw a couple armor techs staring at him, and he ignored it. He'd taken the heavy V round straight to the chest. He'd been lucky the angle had been bad, but the impact hadn't even registered through the kinetic lining. But it had damaged the first couple layers of the wall steel laminate. He had a set of concentric rings around his chest. Again. The void operation space was still only half set up. Any armor that needed immediate repair or had not been checked out the operator had to stand in the frames outside so that the repair technicians could look at it. He waited in line, chewing his last allotment of stim gum for the next two hours, waiting his turn up in the frame. When his turn came, he put one boot then the other into the footrests, feeling the slides flip and hold his foot securely. Then he stepped in and let the grippers take a hold of the forearms. From the sides came the sections to hold him still. Any injuries your Metcom didn't pick up, sir? A Terran female asked, sitting next to the frame. She was one of the ones who chose to have her eyes go solid white when she was using VR sight. No, Buxton said. All right, you've got some high V hits registered, so we'll go into maintenance position nice and slow. You tell me if there's any pain. I'll stop if your heartbeat goes too high or too low or any other medical emergency symptoms occur, she said. His suit went dark and maintenance mode floated up in his vision. Ball 71 was making his report, a full quarter of it devoted to the greeny equivalent of calling the 40mm grenade launcher a complete and total piece of crap that could be replaced by a blind Rygelian duck throwing rocks with its beak. His arms slowly pulled up and his feet spread out until he was in the X position. 
He saw his suit functions flicker by. You're favoring your knees, sir, she said. Injured during first Dalkard, he answered. Building fell on me. The female technician laughed, and after a second the image appeared on Vuxton's screen. It was an elderly-looking Talcott, dressed in Talcott Marine dress uniform, laying on the floor with the caption, Help! I've fallen, and I can't get up. The lower half of the picture was a far shot of collapsed pile of wreckage, and there's a building on me. With the work of Vuxton, you've been fined two days' pay for unauthorized relaxation at the bottom. Vuxton laughed at that. Damn, your left shoulder-mounted indirect fire weapon is jammed. Looks like a known issue. I'll have third shop to see if we can figure it out. You're the tenth token to come through with a jammed launcher, she said, her voice filled with annoyance. All right, the damage on your outer fragmentation deflection plate is largely cosmetic. Looks like only the first layer's cracked. The fabs are working overtime to keep the lank tanks running, so it might be a while before we can replace the chest plate. All right, Buxton answered, sighing. Your right shoulder servo is showing signs of wear. Looks like some slippage in your left boot gravity generator. And you're out of stim gum, she said. All right, I'll pop your shell. Ready? Ready, Buxton said. He felt the weird twinge of the system disconnecting from his nervous system. He panted a few times, getting covered in sweat. With the power shuttle to the environment, then the suit clamshell opened. Buxton stepped down, wincing slightly, as his left knee took the weight and stretched real quick. Ha! Huh. I forgot you talking guys run nude in your armor, the technician laughed. She pointed at the box. Order for jumpsuits are right there. Buxton nodded, panting, feeling sweat slick his fur. As he moved over to the box and grabbed the adaptive camouflage armor weave jumpsuit and pulled it on. His suit was grabbed by the loading system and whisked off into the FOB's main maintenance building. 471 was sitting on the shoulder despite the general's mandate against that waving at everyone and flashing a smiley face with a hat and a cigar between his antennae. He'd just finished sealing his suit, putting on his magak pistol in the holster and heading towards the FOB when a power loader came lurching from between the two vehicles. Vuxton gritted his teeth. After 14 hours on a mission, the last thing he needed was some one-eyed Terran psychopath wrapped in a robotic exoskeleton to lunge out of the shadows. Hey, Lieutenant, there you are, the Terran said. Hello, Sergeant, Buxton said. Given the human, the side eye, and the Terran walked next to him, the frame whirring and whining and hissing. Trucker, the Lank, and your CO were over by the water purifiers. Your CO wanted me to find you, and Trucker and the Lank want to see me. What about? Buxton asked. Something stupid, I'm sure. The human chuckled. He looked at Buxton. Say, sir, want to hear a joke? Wookston nodded warily. Human jokes could range from harmless and silly ones that would make potlings giggle to horribly lewd and profane ones that would make a joy girl faint. All right, so uh, this human guy, he and his wife have a kid, right? The human said. Okay. Wookston wondered if that was the whole joke. So uh, this kid goes to kindergarten, the first year of school, and the kid does a super, super well, the human says stopping for a pair of heavy grav lifters to go by. The dad, he tells the kid, Well, Johnny, since you did so well, daddy's will get you a present. What do you want? The trucks went by and Vuxton followed the terrain as they crossed the muddy street, staying far enough away that the mud splashing by the loading frame's heavy feet didn't splash him. So the kid, the kid looks his dad and says, I want a pink golf ball, daddy, the human said. 
He looked around the corner and then continued to keep walking. So the dad looks at the kid and says, Son, are you sure? I'll get you a new VR playroom or even a little robot dog. The Terran slowed down. But the kid says, No, Daddy, I want a pink golf ball. So the dad, he gets the kid a pink golf ball, and the kid runs off with it, laughing and excited. But the dad never sees him play with it. The next year, the kid goes to the first grade and, uh, Oh, there's Straka. The human NCO waved and hurried up. Sir, the human nodded. Sir, Buxton said, wondering if that was the whole joke. Trucker looked at the NCO. Sergeant, the Most High, and I have a question about the main gun ammunition for this tank, Trucker said. Why ask me? Isn't that the job of the Class 5 fabrication? The human asked. We're asking you, Trucker said, spitting on the ground. Lieutenant, come here, Buxton CO said. Buxton went over, and the Terran colonel waved at him to follow her into the corner. She looked at him. Did you guys see anything weird up on the top of those sky rakers? Buxton relaxed. She just wanted personal briefing. Could be worse, he thought. Nectardy looked out at the night from where she was leaning against the rain on the roof of a massive building that she was standing on. Behind her, the sweet shuttle was going through the pre-flight checklist. She rested her forehead against the top of the railing, holding onto the lower middle railing with her catching hands and the bottom railing with her gripping hands. Major Carnight moved up to her and leaned against the railing. Nectati reached out with her left gripping hand and took his. So, um, they're gone, she asked softly. The whole world is abandoned. Major Carnight nodded. Looks like it. How long ago? Nectati asked. Carnite shrugged. I'm not sure. Decades for sure. Maybe even centuries. But why leave it all running, she asked. Again, Carnite shrugged as she continued. Who's running the Confederacy? Who's making policy? Who's making the decisions? Carnite shook his head. I don't know. Maybe nobody. Someone has to be making decisions, Nectati snarled, squeezing tight with her catching hands. You can't expect me to believe something as huge and complex as the Confederacy is cruising right along with nobody at the wheel. Major Carnite stared at the lights of the air cars moving through the sky, the ground cars sliding along the street, all of them on automatic as if someone was driving them. Windows lit up. He could see Tri-V's changing channels all showing movies. Shadows moved in front of the windows, programmed into the smart glass. Except someone is at the wheel, Major Carnite said. He reached up with his free hand and tapped on his data link. There's a vote right now. Mandatory voting in 18 hours with a yay, nay, or abstain. About 5.6% decrease in wormhole transit rates for core World War refugees like yourself. Right now, standard Terran descents are voting. The clones voted yeah. The BASS voted yeah. The Pavians had 80% abstained. But the vote carried with another 12% voting. Yay. The Trianidad... He trailed off. What? Nectati said as Major Carnite stood up straight. That's, uh, that's impossible, he said. He tapped his data link and looked around. Okay. I refreshed it twice. And it's still insisting. He looked down. Either a fucking miracle has happened, or an entire system just stroked out. What? What's wrong? Nectati asked. The Pubvians voted. Like, 16 billion Pubvians registered their vote after getting a 24-hour extinction. 
Major Carlite said. He looked down at Nectakti. I have a request. Just ask, Nectakti said, reaching out and taking both of the human's hands in her forehands. Whatever it is, just ask. I need you to take me to Pavia, in the Pavian system. It should be in your astrogation system, he said. Of course, whatever you need, she said, hooking up. But why? she asked, tugging him towards the shuttle. We'll go now, just why? Major Carnite looked out at her. Because uh, the Pavians were xenocided by the Mantid in the opening phases of the Terran Mantid War. Talcon Forge Worlds. We've got another division shaking down. That'll be three divisions total. Our first Space Force class will be getting graduating in three days. Nothing follows. Confed Mill. Excellent. We stretched a little thin with the case Omaha, and we're glad that you're... They're so fluffy, has entered the chat. They're so fluffy has changed the name to Bobby Stomper. Bobby Stomper has changed the name to Furry Three-Way. Furry Three-Way has changed their name to That Shit's Not Funny, Terrasol. That Shit's Not Funny, Terrasol has changed their name to Pumpian Federation. Mantid Free World. Yes! Oh, by the Digital Omni Messiah. Yes! Welcome back. Digital Omni Messiah. Yes, whatever has caused this wonderful miracle amid this madness and chaos. Nothing follows. Pumpian Federation. Hello. It's been a while. And I see things have changed. Pavian Federation reaches out and touches Manton Freewold gently. I am both sorry for the loss of so many of your people and grateful to hear your freedom from tyranny. Nothing follows. Doki, doki, doki. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.